And it'll be just a sec. Charles, tell me that we're live, please. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the second Sunday of the month, which means it's time for Nutrition Insights with Dr. Peter Rogers. And today he is going to be discussing how to prevent dementia. I'm sure that's something everybody wants to know. Please welcome him to the show. Good to see you again. How are Thanks. you? Nice to see you. Good. Great. So how you, as a doctor, how common is dementia as, as far as? Dementia is super common. Every day I get a bunch of head CTs and MRIs for mental status uh, changes, cognitive decline, dementia, et cetera. And I can tell you, you know, you go back in time about 25 years ago, everybody said, oh, these cell phones, you know, the EMF, they're going to cause all these brain tumors. Haven't seen that. I have not seen a significant increase in brain tumors, but I'll tell you what I have seen, a dramatic increase in the amount of uh, cognitively impaired people. How is, uh, how is dementia diagnosed? Well, you can do... A person can have so-called subjective cognitive impairment. Um, that's when they notice themselves that they're losing a step. They're forgetting things more often. Um, and then they can have mild cognitive impairment where they're still able to carry out, let's say, their activities of daily living, but they're not so skilled at functioning. They're having a hard time doing any type of complex intellectual activity. And then there's more advanced, you know, dementia where they are simply... Um, you know, incapacitated. They really need help with many things just to get through the day. And I'm actually going to talk about that because that question, what is dementia? It's a surprisingly interesting question. Um, and and I, I'll save it for a slide in my talk, but there, there's a big reason why that's a, that's a very important nuanced question. Great. Well, I can't wait to see it. Okay. You want me to do slides? Yes, please. Okay. Your slides are very artistic, kind of like Dr. Doug Lyle. Yeah, I had I had some fun with this. And for example, I recently reread Hamlet. You know, I found that an enjoying book. And I thought, gosh, this reminds me of, you know, the ghost of Hamlet's father in this Kempner situation. True North had just offered a job for a physician, nutrition physician to work with them. And I thought, gee, that would be fun to work there. But I don't really want to move to California. And my father was kind of this demanding guy. He was a great guy, but he's real demanding of me, you know. And so this reminds me of Hamlet talking to the ghost of his father. The ghost of Kempner has appeared. And he says, why didn't you apply for the job at True North? Me, Hamlet. <laughs> because it's too far away. I don't want to move to California. Ghost Kempner. What? The opportunity of a lifetime and you say it's too far? You say you want to work in nutrition, but when the opportunity comes, you don't apply. You said you wished you divorced your wife 10 years ago when she made you move out of the house that you designed and built. Now's your chance to leave. Me. Well, you know what? She's a great cook and a great secretary. So I decided to stay with her for sake of the kids too. Ghost Kempner mocking me like I'm a woman. He says, methinks the lady doth protest too much. Frailty, thy name is woman. What is he to Hecuba or she to him that he should weep for her? I must be cruel only to be kind. You're pathetic. You can't even control one woman. I had a harem, me. I don't want to live alone. I was alone almost 15 years other than some long distance girlfriends for part of that. I don't. I didn't like it. Ghost Kempner. Look at Goldhammer. He's doing it right. His clinic is like mine. He's got great results. Look at all the good people who recommend it, like Doug Lyle, Chef AJ, Michelle Chen, and lots of others. Me, I would love to work there in the afternoons, maybe doing telehealth or something in the afternoons or talking to patients or giving lectures or something. I just don't want to move there. Well, a lot of the doctors do work remotely. I think it's worth a meeting with him. I, I would love it. Ghost Kempner. 
Aren't you tired of conventional medicine just cranking out billing codes all day? You already know all that stuff. Almost no one ever gets better with conventional medicine. It's a waste of your brain. Nutritional medicine is so much more interesting. Uh, Hammer Rogers. Conventional medicine is where the money is. I still got one kid in college. I got another in grad school. Ghost counting there. Hamlet, I am disappointed in you. Now I must go. Remember me. Hamlet Rogers. All the red, by the way, is the actual words of Hamlet from the play. He spoke with a countenance more in sour than, sorrow than in anger. How all occasions do inform against me. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Oh, that this too, too sullied flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. Oh, my prophetic soul, my fate cries out that it should come to this, to be or not to be a nutrition doctor. That is the question. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. There's a divinity that shapes our ends. Rough hew them thou we, how we will. The other thing Hamlet had going on was he very sad, you know, about his father having passed on. And for some reason, others didn't seem to understand that. And so this was a great scene. I, I know not scenes. We won't go into all that. That's, uh, But also, here's the thing. The play is the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. Because in my mind's eye, I had this metaphor of, you know, this idea of conventional medicine uh, having been usurped by big pharma and or big pharma sort of controlling everything and conventional medicine, you know, kind of like Gertrude having gone over to big pharma and Hamlet's sort of stuck there, you know, like what to do. And if initially unsure, and then the play is the thing, it just becomes more and more obvious. All these decades go by and the new discoveries in nutrition, toxicology, they're never applied to conventional medicine and the doctors aren't trained in them. So, you know, this is a kind of a beautiful painting in the sense that there's Hamlet, there's Ophelia, there's his friend Horatio, there's um, the excuse me, Dr. Rogers, if you're using slides, we haven't seen any of them. Oh, you haven't seen any of my slides? No, I'm oh. so sorry. Oh, I got I go, I got to go to the screen. Yeah, but, I mean, that's the thing. Oh, uh, I got all slides. I, got I all know. Slides. Yeah, we haven't, we've heard your uh, dialogue, but no slides have shown so oh, far. Then it probably just sounded kind of crazy without my slides. All right. <laughs> I got to to the end and then I'm going to. I didn't uh, want to interrupt you when you were on a roll. Yeah, but... yeah, I was, you know, I was living out my moment of trying to be Hamlet. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but we didn't, we don't see the screenshot. Yeah, I yet. get it. So I, I got to, I got to tap through to the end of the slides. There's about a hundred of them. And then I'll, uh, as soon as I get to the end of them, then this, then this thing will end and I can, I can get out of this, the slideshow. I'm using this computer. It's not my regular computer. So I don't really know what I'm doing. All right, so now I'm out of that. So I got to go into Zoom and I got to share my entire screen. That's what I need to do. I think so. Okay, so I click shared screen. I go to desktop. I believe that's the way to go. Now it's sharing. Now it's sharing. Okay, so now I go back to the slide. Perfect. And now. then you want to you want to do it in the mode. Okay. Yeah, the slideshow right. mode. Now can you see my slideshow? Uh, yes, perfect. Thank you. Sorry. Okay, yeah. So you, so you get it. So here is. The, the ghost of Hamlet's father is, is Ghost Kempner, like the father of nutrition. And then here he is telling me, you know, why don't you go work Gullhammer and do some clinical medicine? So I'm, stop doing and do some nutritional medicine. Stop with this conventional stuff. So, and like I said, it reminded me of my, my father. You know, my father was real demanding of me. Uh, so anyways, all right. So that was the first slide. The second slide, I briefly won't go into this. I had a metaphor for it, but it's a little time consuming. This is Hamlet talking to Gertrude. And I, I love that line where she says, why seems it so particular with thee? Seems, madam, nay, it is. I know not seems. This face, these clothes are but the trappings of woe. I have that within which passes show. And I was pissed off because my mother and my father, I could have kept them alive a lot longer if I had known all this stuff, you know? 
I basically dedicated my life to learning all this medical stuff. And then to not know the important things to help my mother and my father, that pissed me off. And then here is a wonderful painting. Hamlet is looking at Claudius, the king. There's Gertrude right here. There's Polonius right there. There's Ophelia. And there is his friend Horatio. And there's the ongoing scene, which reminds me of, of conventional medicine, not adapting the discoveries that have been made decades ago. Okay, and then here's an incredible painting, very sad, but this is a painting by John Everett Millais of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood about 1851. And it sort of reminds me of protecting the, the benefit and the knowledge because it could be sort of hidden away. It's like hidden away on the internet for the most part by the paleo low carb, et cetera. This painting was transformative though. The Pre-Raphaelites sort of demonstrated this new style of realism. She was basically posing in her bathtub. This is an actress in his bathtub. As a matter of fact, the, the heaters went off and she caught a cold and he had to pay her extra, but and it remind me of the poem of Edgar Allan Poe many, many years ago in A Kingdom by the Sea, Annabelle Lee. Okay, so now we're getting ready to go into dementia stuff. That was just a little intro. And of course, this is the scene where Hamlet is with his friend Horatio. And this is the one scene, you know, in the cemetery and whatnot. But it reminded me too, you know, I know Dr. McDougall recently gave a lecture, a very good lecture about the effect of aluminum on causing Alzheimer's dementia. And it is true. Aluminum is a major neurotoxin. There's no doubt about it. But I want to say in this video right here, what Hamlet said to Horatio, Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, in the sense that yes, aluminum is a major neurotoxin and Dr. McDougall is an awesome doctor, but there's a lot more going on with dementia than aluminum. Okay, a brief little mini review of some neuroanatomy. So other things will make more sense. This is a three-part brain of McLean. He was a neuroanatomist. The brainstem here, the pons, for example, it's almost like your fist in continuity with your forearm. That is called the reptile brain. A reptile just lays a couple eggs, walks away. All it is is like a primitive id, you know, the Freudian id, what it wants, what it wants now. It doesn't have to do anything for the kids. They're on their own. The mammal brain is like the cingulate gyrus in continuity into the medial temporal lobe. And that is the mammal brain. A mammal, you know, has live born young. It nurses them, has to protect them a bit. And it's a very instinctive, impulsive, fast brain, okay? And then on top of that is the primate brain, the human brain, the cerebral cortex. So this is a three-part brain. Human brain on top, evolution, if that's the way to explain it, but theoretically it works for this, builds one thing on top of another. Mammal brain, instinctual, and um, the brainstem here, just you know, like automatic stuff, your heartbeat, your blood pressure, things like that. Okay, so the, the point of it all is like, for example, let's say you're having an argument with your significant other, okay? You say to yourself, well, I'm in a bit of a mammal impulsive mode. I'll wait till tomorrow. I don't wanna say something I shouldn't say or something. That helps you have good judgment. We're not, we don't need to go into too much brain anatomy. It's fun to go into brain anatomy, but we'll just have a couple of basic things, things you need to know. You need to know this, this is the hippocampus. It's called hippocampus because that means like seahorse in Greek, shaped like a seahorse. And CA1, cornua amna part one, that is a very, very sensitive to hypoxia, and hypoglycemia, low glucose and low oxygen. And so that gets damaged. One of the first things get damaged. And the point is, it's also sensitive to most of the other stuff we're gonna talk about. You wanna protect it. That's your memory center. So the most important part of your brain, and that comes in from your sense of smell, the anterorhinal cortex is, because you can free associate a smell with anything. You can free associate a smell, you know, with your dog, with the food that's cooking on the stove, with your girlfriend, with anything, okay? So the point being is, it's more of a free association cortex, and that's thought to potentially be the prelude to all the rest of the primate cortex, rather than some of the, you know, you know, touch and kinesthetic sense that are more precise and simple, if you will. Okay, this is just one quick slide of the glial lymphatic system. This is what happens when you sleep. 
Glymphatic system is a combination of the word, word glial, supporting cells of the brain. That also means like glue in Latin, and lymphatics, like lymphatics elsewhere in the body. So the gist of it is at night while you're asleep, the brain goes offline. The brain cannot go offline during the day because it has to maintain precise um, ion gradients. You know, it has to have a precise milieu in order to function. It's an electrical uh, structure. But at night when it can go offline, it opens up these spaces here, the perivascular spaces, the Virchow Robin, and it lets cerebrospinal fluid flow over the, the neurons, over the brain parenchyma. And sort of like Victorian England with their chamber pots, they empty their waste out into the street. They just pump their waste out of the neurons. And then the CSF, cerebrospinal fluid, rinses over and rinses the waste products from the arterial side to the venous side. And then they're excreted. Some of them are excreted locally in capillaries, interstitial fluid, but they're largely excreted, let's say, through the arachnoid granulations at the top of the skull and along the cranial nerves, that sort of thing. But the point I'm making here is you need to sleep to clean your brain. If you don't sleep, you don't clean your brain and your neurons are stuck with waste products. Okay, one last slide before I start getting into all the, the high-tech stuff. This is my cross-country picture when I was in high school. And a lot of times you'll hear people say, all these college professors say, you can increase IQ. That's completely wrong. And this picture here will prove it very quickly, okay? Uh, when I ran cross country, I ran cross country my senior year of high school because I got injured and I couldn't wrestle for a while because I had a, a fracture in my shoulder. And so this guy right here was valedictorian of uh, our high school. He, he had an older sister and brother that were um, doctors and he was already accepted in the six-year med program. Uh, he ended up not liking it. He decided not to go to medicine. You know, I'm, he's brilliant. I kind of lost track of him, but he's going to be a psychologist and I'm sure he'll be one of the best. Um, but I just show you this because I started hanging around these guys. I never even took honors classes before. Okay. And then this guy ended up going to Stanford too. This guy also, these all, all of us, and I, I retook the SAT three times. I think my first score was like a 590 on math and I ended up getting like a 770. The point I'm saying is there's no change in my brain. I just prepared for it. Okay. And what got me motivated was being around these guys. They all scored a lot higher than I did on the SATs. And I'm like, well, why can't I score higher? So I just bought the book and studied on my own and did a lot better. So anybody could study on their own and do better if you're motivated, okay? Then when I was at Stanford, I got like B minus as my first set of uh, you know quarter system. And I was real sad because I hadn't taken any difficult classes. I took a study skill class. This guy was also over there on the other side of campus. And he got A pluses in calculus and physics. And I go, how did you do it? Teach me how you did it. And so he taught me his study techniques, but I think more importantly, I started hanging around with him. Like we took biology together and he had, he, he knew people. I didn't know people. I'm all day. I'm wrestling, lifting weights and stuff. He knew like a guy who was a naturalist, like a former professor over there at Stanford. And we would go bird watching. And then while we're bird watching, he's sitting there talking about the book he read that weekend, like Stephen Jay Gould, you know, evolutionary biology theories and stuff. So we were constantly, everything we're doing in class, we're talking about it within our mind's eye that we would someday become biologists. And when you think you're going to do something, your brain's programmed to remember what you care about. And so if you just study something for a test, hope you do well, that's very short-term memory. But if you're out there with binoculars trying to understand nature, that's long-term memory. Okay, so, you know, this is just a regular, you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class high school. And we got all these guys and these other guys are all excellent students too. Cross-country is the best students in the high school I've seen. And Ruth Hydras had said too, in her experience, the runners maintain their cognitive function very well. And I think the point of that is, the brain's much more designed for movement than it is for uh, doing calculus, okay? They can make a computer do calculus back in the 1950s. And they, it's only recently they're being able to make robots even more coordinated and able to move more effectively, okay? It takes a lot more neuronal resources to produce movement than it does to do a math problem, for example. So people think that the math is the hard thing, but actually coordinated movement is much more difficult for the brain. And this comes up with Moravik's paradox, the idea that the Hard problem was easy. The easy problem was hard, as I just said, to make computers and robots do these things. The hard part is to make them move effectively. 
Okay, and Voltaire had a quote, why do animals have brains but plants do not? Because the animal moves. As soon as you move, you got to have a brain. You got to make a value judgment. I will go towards the fruit tree. I will stay away from the danger over there, the coyotes. Okay, then you have to have a memory. How will I find my way back? Okay, um, you have to navigate. You have to avoid obstacles. So you use your brain and it makes you smarter. I've had many times experience that I'll be reading a book and I start spacing out. I get to the end of the paragraph. I can't remember it. I get up and walk and I can remember it. All of a sudden my brain becomes clear. And the simple reason why that makes sense is think about an animal. They're always out in the wild. As soon as they step into a new environment, they have to figure it out very quickly. Their brain is on maximum alert because if they don't figure out that environment quickly, they're dead. Okay. They're going to get eaten by a hawk, a snake, a coyote, or whatever it might be. So movement and using your brain, they go hand in hand. Okay. And it's one of the best things you can do to prevent dementia is exercise every day, you know, at a minimum, you know, brisk walk. Okay. All right, now here's a quick picture of two main types of atherosclerosis. First one's called the East Asian pattern, Japanese pattern. You know, in the 1970s, Japanese, they ate a lot of sodium and it was associated with high blood pressure, okay? But they had a low-fat diet um, and they also ate a lot of plant foods, all right? And then here's more of a Western type of atherosclerosis. They get it in the carotid artery at bifurcations. That's a key point at bifurcations. They also get it in the coronary arteries of the heart, okay? And so that is especially is associated with a high-fat diet. And a lot of people, of course, you know, do both and they'll have both. But in general, those are two major categories of atherosclerosis. Okay, now we talked about how do you diagnose dementia and should the word Alzheimer's be used all the time with dementia? In my opinion, no, it should not. Alzheimer's is really kind of a bizarre disease, okay? Nobody knows what it is. And I actually think the term is totally overrated. And I think it's almost become like a knee-jerk reflex. Oh, the most common cause of dementia is Alzheimer's. Really? Do you know what you're talking about? What is the historical question that diagnoses Alzheimer's? Meaning, what question do you ask a patient? There is none. There's no specific question you can diagnose Alzheimer's from. What's the physical exam finding? Can you detect it with your stethoscope or any other physical exam maneuver? No, you can't. What's the definitive lab test? There is none. They're getting better a little bit, maybe with PTAU or some of these other things, but they're still not definitive. Imaging, they'll tell you, oh, you know, medial temporal lobe, parietal convexity atrophy, not that useful. I look at demented brains all the time, every day. I don't ever, hardly ever see that characteristic so-called uh, pattern. I see diffuse total atrophy, not focal medial temporal atrophy. Okay, what about autopsy? You know, people used to say, well, it's pathognomonic, you know, when you've got neurofibrillary tangles, intracellular, you've got senile plaques with beta amyloid, extracellular, that's Alzheimer's. No, it's not. There's lots of cognitively normal people who have that. There's other demented people who don't have that so much. So they can't definitively diagnose uh, reliably Alzheimer's disease at autopsy. And then what's the treatment? They have all these nonsense treatments that don't work. There's no treatment that works for Alzheimer's. So what I'm saying is if you cannot effectively diagnose a disease and you cannot treat that isn't that kind of a joke? And you can't explain it either. Okay, so now I'm gonna get into some things. Okay, by the way, this is like a typical 70-year-old uh, brain, 75-year-old brain. All these white spots are abnormal. Okay, this is what's called a flare sequence is like a fat suppressed T2. I'm sorry, a, a cerebral spinal fluid suppressed T2. What that means is there's no signal coming from the fluid in the ventricles, but the pathology here, these are silent strokes, typically silent strokes. They could be symptomatic, but they're often silent. This is sort of, you know, the association fibers, the white matter, the myelinated fibers. So what I'm saying is you don't want any of these white spots in your brain. Most Americans have at least one after the age of 55, but I've seen lots of people in their 80s that don't have any. By eating and living healthy, you don't get any of these spots because each one of them it reminds me of the metaphor. This is Ehrlich's metaphor, the biologist. He said, it's like popping rivets off an airplane. 
And you can keep popping them off and the plane will fly for a long time, but it's going to start to not work so well. And potentially you might have some big problems. Yeah. So you don't want to be causing silent strokes. And what causes silent strokes? We'll talk about that in a moment. These are what are called microbleeds. Okay. This is a SWI sequence on brain MRI, susceptibility weighted imaging, meaning that when there is a bleed in the brain, these are small old microbleeds, there's heme, there's iron, okay, in the blood. And it settles in the brain. The brain can't effectively clear it all out. So that heme being iron, it distorts the magnetic field. So that's why it's, and that's called a susceptibility artifact. So these centrally located in the brain microbleeds, that's very characteristic of hypertension. These peripheral little microbleeds are typical of cerebral amyloid angiopathy, which is a subtype of so-called Alzheimer's disease due to amyloid um, <clears throat> accumulation in the walls of the arteries. Okay. But the, here's why it's a little bit of a joke too, because I look at tons of these brains and it's very routine for me. I see both. I'll see young hypertensive patients with them in the periphery and I'll see uh, so-called Alzheimer's patients with them in the center and not in the periphery. And I'll see a lot of patients with both of them. I see guys in their forties with both of them. A lot of people in the United States have bad hypertension. So yes, there is such a thing as amyloid accumulation in the arterial walls. But I think hypertension is much more important than is widely recognized, okay? The same patients that have this tend to have hypertensive retinopathy in their eye with hemorrhages in their eye, for example. The eye is almost like the brain. It's part of the brain, really, cranial nerve too. And a lot of things happen in the eye sooner. I can tell you the vast majority of brains I look at for dementia, they've had at least cataract surgery on at least one side, if not both, okay? Now, this is a little different here. This is a CAT scan. You can tell because the bone is so, so bright. Um, and this right here is a bleed into the, this area here of the brain is called the basal ganglia. And so this is a big hemorrhage, a parenchymal hemorrhage. I can tell you, I don't see these very often. You know, I actually kind of hardly ever see interparenchymal hemorrhages. Okay. In comparison, I see these every single day, these microbleeds. Um, this is just calcification in the pineal gland. That's very common. Okay. And here's some calcification in the basal gland. These things are so common, calcifications in the pineal gland and the basal ganglia. We just consider them normal. We don't even, some docs won't even mention them in the report but I don't think they are. What I'm trying to say is atherosclerosis and related problems are so common that minor ones don't even get mentioned. All right. Now I've just said here, you know, I've, I've gone through many thousands of brains and I looked at them and these are the patterns I see. If I look at a thousand cognitive impairment, memory loss, demented brains, 900 of them, that's 90% will have both hypertension and uh, diabetes or at least pre-diabetes. Okay. Um, they, you, like I said, usually have cataract surgery. They usually have poor dentition. Leaky gums goes with leaky gut and they can both contribute to dementia as we'll go into that uh, later. Okay. Alzheimer's have been called type three diabetes. All right. Um, from now on, I'm going to mostly just say dementia. All right. Cause I don't even really like the word Alzheimer's. Um, kind of makes me cringe a little bit to say it. Um, diabetes and hypertension go together as they do with obesity, as they do with CAD, coronary artery disease. Okay. Um, most of them, the majority will be overweight. A large number of them will have sleep apnea. Um, cigarette smoking, of course, is a big risk factor. Alcoholics have terrible looking brains, severely atrophy. You know, and I like this quote by Ayn Rand, drugs are for people with a flawed philosophy. If you know what you want to do with your life and you're pursuing a goal, you don't want to waste time. You don't want to injure your brain with chemicals. Some of them will have a, a large stroke, but that's uncommon. You know, post-infarct dementia, that's relatively uncommon compared to just a progressively damaged brain, you know, at the cellular level. Okay. You get some TBI brains. Um, usually that's not the main cause, but that's usually, there's a lot of guys that are demented from TBI. Um, and TBI is, is an important common thing. We're going to talk about that. One of the common things I see at TBI centers is recommendations for Mediterranean diet. In my opinion, that's a big mistake. You want low fat, low sodium vegan diet to get better blood flow to those brains. I'll explain why in, in a moment, but I'm just telling you, I've seen that as a common mistake. Uh, you'll see some Parkinson's and these other rare conditions. 
Women who had a hysterectomy before age 35, they got a dramatically increased risk of coronary artery disease, congestive heart failure, and dementia, okay? Um, and that's because menstruation is protective for a woman. It's like a therapeutic phlebotomy every month, which lowers her, hem her hematocrit, lowers her blood clump. That makes her blood more like water instead of like a milkshake, lowers her blood viscosity. So that is a protective effect. Once they've got that hysterectomy, they're more likely to become, have physiology similar to a man and be more likely to be hypertensive, for example. And a lot of times they're not aware of it. Like a guy, he knows his friends have become impotent, his friend had a heart attack, but a woman, she probably don't see that happening in her girlfriend. So she's not so aware. Okay, we'll talk about EDCs, endocrine disrupting chemicals in a little bit here. Now people say, well, you got to do a head CT and a brain MRI because they might have a brain tumor. If we take out the brain tumor, meningioma, pushing on the frontal lobes, for example, maybe we can cure the patient or maybe they've got communicating hydrocephalus. We could put a shunt in and maybe we could help them, especially walking, not so much cognitive. Maybe they got a subdural hematoma. We'll drain the subdural hematoma. They'll get better. Let me tell you something. I almost never see this stuff. Yes, it's reasonable to look at it, but I'm just telling you those treatable things, they're like, they're like so rare. It's not even funny. I could easily go a year and not see, I could go five years and not see a single meningioma causing dementia. Okay. It's rare. Um, gosh, I've probably seen two in my career that were the cause of dementia and that was not known in some way. Okay. Um, infections, those are all quite rare. Uh, sometimes the brain looks completely normal and nobody knows why the patient's demented. Um, let's see. You can also look for these things. Are they hypothyroid? Is there vitamin B12 deficiency, thiamine deficiency, like in alcoholics, especially, are they really just depressed? You know, uh, some of these other things. All right. Let's see. Oh, and yeah, all this other stuff, you know, these recreational drugs are really stupid. MJ is like one of the stupidest things you could do for your brain. The neurologists are really aware. I talk with them a lot about that. They get these patients that are cognitively impaired because of that, or had schizophrenic breakdowns laced with PCP, all kinds of problems like that. Okay. Um, F minus in the water is not good for brains, heavy metal toxicities. Okay. But now we're going to get into something really big. Okay. Now we're going to talk here about uh, the deletory theory. Some of you heard me talk about this. This is super important. If you, you got to understand this concept to be able to think logically about the brain and dementia. So deletory, Jack deletory, PhD, he did all these experiments tying off arteries that supply the brain with blood flow. So here he's tying off the internal carotid artery going up to the mouse brain. And when he first did it, he figured, okay, you know, the mouse typically become demented if they're middle-aged and older mice uh, about two months later. One thing that's interesting is the mice did not become demented if the mice were young. All right, we'll talk about that in a moment. But the gist of it is a young mouse, like a young human, they've got a lot more reserve physiology, if you will. They make more endothelial nitric oxide. Their arteries are more able to repair themselves and to maintain good blood flow. But people become more fragile as they get older, middle age and older. So that's why you want to have optimal habits if you can, because you're more fragile as you get older and you don't want to fall into cognitive decline. So anyways, he's tying off the carotid artery, let's say internal carotid artery here on the left side of the mouse. It's always as if the feet were towards you in terms of left and right side when you're talking about an image or a drawing in a medical point of view. So what happened is he, he does autopsy on the mouse brain. There's no stroke. But the mouse brain on the same side retied off the carotid was shrunken. It was atrophic, okay? And I figured that out myself. I see all these atrophied brains. It has to be because the brain's shrinking. I don't see any stroke, okay? All right, so anyways, you say, okay, well, how many people have an occluded carotid artery? Not that many, you know, atherosclerotic occluded internal carotid artery. Well, I mean, a lot of them got a plaque, but not that many even have severe stenosis. 
Well, Del Torre made the point. He did a whole bunch of experience. He would tie off both carotid arteries. He'd tie off both carotids and a vertebral artery, trying to figure out what would it take. He'd go into the brain, tie off the middle cerebral artery. So he really tested this out. And he wrote a great book called The Alzheimer's, The Turning Point, okay? And I think it's the best book ever written on, on depression. I've read a lot about, on, on dementia. I've read a lot about the subject. Okay, so anyways, well, what does this all mean? I'll tell you what it means. Think about it. Imagine you have a person with hypertension, okay? If you over-treat the hypertension, you're kind of becoming a mouse equivalent, right? Think about it. He called his theory, um, it's sometimes called the vascular hypothesis of dementia, vascular hypothesis of Alzheimer's dementia, um, the chronic cerebral hypoperfusion theory of dementia. Um, I call it sometimes the mouse equivalent theory. And the reason I'll do this is, think about hypertension. If the blood pressure is way too high, you can get those intracranial brain bleeds like I showed you, those micro bleeds, or even super rare, the parenchymal bleed. And that's not good. More importantly, the hypertension is damaging the small arteries in the brain. That's the big deal because chronic damage to those small arteries is going to decrease their ability to supply oxygen to the neurons, the brain cells, and that's going to lead those brain cells to eventually die. They die by what is called apoptosis, a form of programmed cell death, which means a gradual death. They're able to recycle themselves because it happens gradually. That's in comparison with a, an acute stroke where there's a sudden occlusion of a distal vessel with a lack of collateral supply such that the brain tissue dies suddenly. That's called necrosis. So sudden death of a brain cell is necrosis. The plasma membrane lyses, its contents spill all over the adjacent parenchyma. There's an intense inflammatory immune response. You can see a lot of edema, water in that area from the inflammation. And you can point with your finger on the brain MRI. This is where the stroke is. You know, the left precentral gyrus, all right? It's not like that with uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of dementia patients. They just have a atrophic brain. Okay, so now why might that be? It can happen from overtreated hypertension, okay? Um, chronic cerebral hypoperfusion, atrial fibrillation, 25% drop, you lose the atrial kick, atrial filling, chronic cerebral hypoperfusion. You're like the mouse, especially if your rhythm's going too fast, let's say, your, your heartbeat, congestive heart failure, decreased pumping ability of the heart. You're like the mouse, chronic cerebral hypoperfusion, obstructive sleep apnea, you're hypoxic. I've seen some patients at night dropping their oxygen saturations into the 60s. Okay, uh, diabetes, You a lot of patients, now that they got those um, continuous monitors, they got some patients, you know, they find that they're really dropping their blood glucose very low at night. Okay, so that in combination with hypoxia, not good for your neurons, brain neurons use tons of glucose. Okay, especially during that rapid eye movement sleep. All right, overtreated hypertension. We talked about that, carotid stenosis, aortic stenosis, aortic regurgs, those happen with significant incidence. Post-cabbage hypotension. So cabbage is coronary artery bypass graft. You know, like my father went and had that. It was before I knew enough. That was many, many, many years ago. And I knew about Ornish and I told him about Ornish, but I didn't know enough. Esselstyn, I didn't know about Esselstyn yet. And I was sort of early on in my own understanding of it. I should have come down stronger. He kind of got pushed into it by the cardiologist and the surgeon. So my dad, I, I stayed with him in the ICU and they were running his pressure at sometimes like 85 over 60. And I go, I had the anesthesiologist called in. I'm like, why are you running his pressure so low? It's a low blood pressure. And they go, well, we don't want them to bleed at the anastomosis. Those are where they connect the grafts in for the coronary artery bypass, open heart surgery of the heart. And, uh, you know, my dad came through it okay, but I think a lot of other patients probably got a lot more baseline cerebral atherosclerosis than my dad did. And they might have cognitive impairment that's sometimes called pump head from uh, going through cabbage in the post-operative uh, course of hypotension. Um, severe anemia can be somewhat similar. Okay, so here's a coronal look at the brain, meaning looking at the brain from front to back as if the person was looking at you. I put a skull and crossbones right here at this area because this is sometimes called a deep white matter. 
And this is sort of an end artery zone, meaning that the arteries that come up over the convexity, they sort of barely get here. The arteries that come in from below, they sort of barely get there. So if you've got a problem with your blood supply, this is a spot that tends to be deprived of oxygen and glucose delivery. And you'll tend to get all those silent strokes like that brain MRI I showed you a couple moments ago with those little white spots, it was from this, all right? So when you're looking at a coronal MRI, first of all, here's the internal carotid artery comes up into the brain. It bifurcates. This is the middle cerebral artery branch. These branches that go to the basal ganglia are called the lenticulostriate artery branches. Then it goes out around the convexities. And then it has these penetrating arteries that come in and supply this central uh, myelinated fibers here, association cortex, deep white matter, okay? At the level of the lateral ventricles of the brain, this is called the coronal radiata. So the lowest levels of basal ganglia where these deep nuclei are. Here's the corona radiata at the level of the lateral ventricles. And above that is the centrum semiovale because it's in the center and it's shaped semi-oval. Okay, but the point is you can see here, if your hypertension pressure is too high, you'll have an increased risk of microbleeds right here because you'll shear off these arteries and have injuries right in here, okay? And you'll sometimes get microbleeds up in here, especially theoretically because of amyloid deposition in the arterial wall. Um, and that can cause bleeding, okay? That's the beta amyloid protein, all right? But you're, you're going to drop blood supply here. You have overtreated hypertension. That's why you got to be careful not to overtreat your hypertension. So you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. You overtreat it, you might get these silent strokes. You undertreat it, while you undertreat it and you're hypotensive, you can, might get these silent strokes. If you don't treat it though, you might get these microbleeds. So the best thing to do is what you're looking for is the Goldilocks balance, okay? You know, Goldilocks and the three bears. Remember when she went in the kitchen and she tasted the oatmeal? This one's too hot. This one's too cold. This one's just right. So the best thing to do is let your body control it. If you haven't done, you know, baseline damage to the arteries already, eating a low fat, low sodium diet, okay? Because uh, your brain, your body's pretty good at controlling it. You know, why is your why is your pressure high in the first place? Because it has to get blood up to your brain, okay? So if you drop it too low, you might not get enough blood to your brain. All right, now here's just a little bit of anatomy just to show you a common normal variant. This is what's called the circle of Willis. We often call it the cow, C-O-W, circle of Willis. Here's the internal carotid arteries coming up. Here's the middle cerebral artery bifurcation that I showed you. These are small posterior communicators that connect the ICA to the posterior circulation, meaning the basilar artery. The basilar artery is fed by the vertebral artery. So here's the vertebral arteries. They both come up, they merge. There's a union of the verts to form the basilar artery. Okay. And the point I'm going to make here is quite often these PCOMs, posterior communicators, are very small arteries. And you have a robust basilar artery, and it supplies most of the posterior circulation of the brain. However, we often see a normal variation where the PCOMs have remained quite large. It's thought their fetal circulation, they're very big, and then they normally atrophy, but not in everybody. In some patients, they stay big. And the relevance being, if they stay big, you'll often have associated hypoplasia, lack of development, really small basilar artery inverts. So this would be an example of the basilar being much smaller than the internal carotids. So this is a hypoplastic basilar. The relevance is you'll accumulate atherosclerosis on the posterior wall of this, and you can knock off the pontine perforators that supply the pons, the brainstem here. So why am I showing you this? Because do you have this? You don't know. I don't know. Maybe I've got it. Nobody knows if you have this normal variant and it's relatively common. And the point is you're at increased risk for a brainstem cerebellar stroke if you got it. And there's lots of analogous similar things in the heart and other parts of the brain. They're just not as big as macroscopic. So the smart move is assume you have it and live accordingly. Minimize your atherosclerosis and your hypertension and your diabetes risk factors. Okay, because here's what happens. This atherosclerosis, this plaque, it accumulates on the wall. So here's normal looking arteries in the circle of Willis, all right? And then here's what this thick plaque, and you can see how the, the lumen where the blood flow is, it can be relatively small with all this atherosclerotic plaque accumulating. 
And then now this slide got a little messed up, but what I meant to show you is this is a person who has that variant. And so they had a hypoplastic um, basal artery and they started knocking off their, their cerebellar artery uh, branches, the pontine perforators and their cerebellar arteries. You know, there's a superior cerebellar, middle cerebellar, inferior cerebellar artery, posterior inferior cerebellar artery. So these are all strokes, these little white spots, pop, 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 pop. So you don't know what you got. You might have that. So don't mess around, get your act together. Okay, this is Esselstyn's advice about, you know, eating the plant food several times a day. I haven't gone down this path. I'm still eating the old mad diet just for the convenience because I work full time. Um, but what Esselstyn is saying is the plants contain nitrates, you know, NO3, three oxygens there. The bacteria on the back of the tongue help convert those into nitrates, NO2, two oxygens on it. Okay, and then when it goes in the stomach, the stomach acid gets converted to nitric oxide, one oxygen on it. And that's absorbed into the blood. And that causes some systemic vasodilation, which improves your blood flow to your tissues throughout your body. Good blood flow. Every organ in your body needs good blood flow to work effectively. And that's another reason why I recommend avoiding uh, toothpaste with F- in it or mouthwash with F- and be careful of antibiotics. Don't be habitual with those if you can avoid it. Because um, otherwise you'll, you'll destroy these bacteria on the back of the tongue and you won't be able to make this in initial conversion from nitrate um, oh, this is supposed to be nitrite here. I didn't uh, write that on the slide. All right. Now, this is what's happening in your heart. Your heart contracts. Cardiac contraction is called systole. And then that's the contraction of the heart. It pushes blood from the left ventricle into the ascending thoracic aorta. That stretches the ascending thoracic aorta outward and has a lot of elastic fibers, which on this next little image right over here, part of my slide got clipped off. It pushes inward. That's called elastic recoil. And that maintains good diastolic flow. But people who've been eating high-fat uh, diets with lots of sodium, they will destroy these elastic fibers, and they can't be replaced after a person's in their 20s. So what happens is this aorta no longer can generate significant diastolic flow, so systolic pressure has to go up. So that's why you see lots of systolic hypertension in persons as they get older. So again, the sooner you get your act together, the better. All right, so why is fat such a big deal? Fat causes red blood cells to stick together. So here's a normal red blood cell. It's called a discoid shape. And fat here, like in the form of, let's say, LDL cholesterol or chylomicrons, other things can do that too. Fibrinogen will do that. They'll stick the RBCs together. A typical RBC is a little bigger than a capillary. And, you know, typically about seven microns. Capillary is about five microns. So it has to deform a little bit to pass through there. When they're all stuck together like a giant triple-decker, quadruple-decker sandwich, it's harder for the RBCs to deform. They have less deformability. That means blood is thicker, higher viscosity blood. And that means pressure has to go up to pump them through the vascular system, okay? Normally flow should be like this. This is called laminar flow with the red blood cells in the center. That's why I got red there. The blue is actually for the white blood cells. And then down here with my thumbs, like where these black arrows are, that would be the plasma running adjacent to the endothelium. The lining cells of the arteries are called the endothelium. Okay, and that's normal flow, laminar flow. That makes your arteries happy makes your endothelial cells happy. Okay, now red blood cells have a negative charge on the periphery and that's called a zeta potential. And it's important because the zeta potential repels other RBCs. That's what you want. You don't want them sticking together. Elevated LDL cholesterol in the blood has a positive charge on its outer surface and it sticks the red blood cells together. So you can imagine if my two fists were red blood cells and here I'll use a yellow for fat and this was an LDL sticking them together. So these molecules that stick the red blood cells together are called bridging molecules. Uh, fibrinogen also does it. Uh, uric acid can do it. IgM can do it. Chylomicrons can do it. And to have the red blood cells stuck together, sometimes it's described with the French word rouleau, which means a stack of coins. Okay. 
And this is a slide that got, uh, which was kind of clipped a little bit here, but the higher the LDL cholesterol, the thicker the blood. Okay, so that's an important point. Cholesterol is a major risk factor for atherosclerosis. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. There's a lot of people that try to confuse the public, you know, promote all these uh, high fat diets and all this paleo leak, low carb nonsense. Okay, anyways, when you eat fat, you can actually see it in the blood. It becomes more opaque. If you watch that movie Game Changers about the effect of uh, vegan diets on athletes, you'll, they show you some actually test tubes of this. You can see this very thing. Okay. So here's a red blood cell. Here's a matocrit. Let's say typically in the ballpark around 40, 44% or something. This is where the WBCs are. They call it the Buffy coat. And here's the plasma up above. Okay. When you feed people high fat meal, and this was figured out by Peter Quo back in the 1950s, he's a cardiologist. And later, uh, uh, Meyer Friedman and Ray Roseman did similar experience, especially looking at the eye in the 1960s. And what they found was you know, Quo initially showed sat fat. When you eat a big meal, a lot of sat fat, it makes your red blood cells stick together. He checked, these are little notches where every 30 minutes he checked their blood triglycerides and uh, cholesterol. And at peak lipemia, he did it with a bunch of patients that had coronary artery disease and angina, meaning they get chest pain, chest pain on exertion, for, exertion, for example. The, the more fat in their blood, the more episodes they had and the worse their chest pain, okay? And then it would gradually wear off, you know, over the course of the next couple of hours. So it peaked at around four to six hours when you eat sat fat. When you eat oil though, they figured, oh, everybody thought, oh, well, unsaturated fat's gonna be better, you know? Because Ansel Keys had shown in the 1950s, you know, what a disaster sat fat is for the coronary arteries. So there was this big push towards eating more uh, omega-6 oils in the 1960s, but they found that that caused even more longer, prolonged uh, blood sludge, low formation of the RBCs. And as a matter of fact, their technologists working with them on the experiments got pissed off because they wanted to go home and the, the blood viscosity, it still remained high. You know, they're worried about cardiac risk patients. Okay. So here's what happens when the blood comes up with hypertension. Normally when the blood comes up, let's say this is a common carotid artery. Here's the external carotid artery that goes to the face. Internal carotid artery goes to the brain. And there's always going to be a little bit of turbulence at a bifurcation point. The blood flow hits this median divider, and it bounces off. There's going to be some turbulent flow, meaning sort of chaotic in multiple directions. And there's also going to be what are called eddy retrograde currents, where they go backwards. And the point is, if there's an excessive amount of retrograde currents, they will confuse the lining cells of the artery. The lining cells of the artery will perceive that as an injury to the vessel, and they will shed their antithrombotic glycocalyx. That means their coating. Glycocalyx is kind of like, imagine the trees on a hill. All right. Imagine the trees all of a sudden were, were removed. All right. Shed their, their treetops. Um, and they start to express prothrombotic molecules. And this is where you'll always see the clot. So there's tons of bifurcations in the coronaries. So you get little atherosclerotic plaques all over the place in the coronaries. Um, whereas in the carotid, you just get them at the bifurcation. You don't get them hardly ever in the straight part of the artery. Now I see them all the time right here. It's a typical location. And by the way, atherosclerosis is a blood clot. Hardly anybody knows that because it's not in the regular medical school books. But if you actually study atherosclerosis in a serious way and really try to understand it, you'll find that atherothrombosis theory is what explains everything. And cholesterol theory is really, you know, it's a subset of atherothrombosis theory. Okay, I did a fellowship with the emphasis on vascular disease at Harvard, you know, back in the 1990s. So I've been studying atherosclerosis for a long, long time. Okay, and I look at it every day. Okay, um, Anyways, let's, get in, let's look at some more of these slides here. I'm going to show you a little bit about microcirculation. First of all, when you have an area of neuronal activity and it's becoming more active, because the brain changes all the time. Let's say you're walking down a path in the forest, you're having a good time, you got your binoculars, you're looking at the birds, your friend's telling you a story about the birds, this is what blue jays do. Okay, that's nice. All of a sudden, there's three coyotes over there. Now you're a little nervous. Should I run? What should I do? Should I stand strong? Should I stare them down? And all of a sudden, 
all these neurons in your brain have to become really active, go from zero to 60 fast. So the point is you get ramped up activity in a part of your brain that's going to need a lot more oxygen and glucose. So it actually sends a message to the artery that propagates vasodilation retrograde. So more blood flow will come into this segment. So that's kind of a cool concept, retrograde vasodilation. And that is from the neuronal activity of, of the local part of brain tissue versus you also get something called anaerobate vasodilation. Just the stress response says we need more blood, fly, blood supply to certain parts of the brain. That's actually a more complex subject than it sounds. But let's say especially to the part of the brain for running or for climbing trees. All right. <clears throat> but this is a very cool concept that this retrograde vasodilation is spread by transverse gap junctions through these endothelial cells, um, you know, heading back towards the big, you know, convexity arteries, the peel arteries of the surface of the brain is called the pia. What does this all mean? You've also got <clears throat> gap junctions, you know, going into the vascular smooth muscle cells around these vessels, because when the muscles contract, they narrow the diameter of the artery. What I'm saying is these are all working together in concert, in conjunction, like a symphony. When you start damaging this vessel wall due to hypertension and diabetes and accumulation of debris and inflammatory pathology and atherosclerosis, you damage the ability to conduct effectively. I'm kind of joking here, but like atrial fibrillation of the brain damaging the conduction pathways, not a good thing to do, okay? The brain is more delicate. And I actually think that's one of the unique things that I also add to the teaching of nutrition is most nutrition lectures are everybody's talks about, you just keep those arteries of the heart open, do the Esselstyn diet and you're set for life. And the Esselstyn diet is wonderful. He deserves a Nobel prize for figuring that out. But what I'm saying here is the brain is more fussy than the heart. You can have the arteries of the heart be functioning reasonably well and be cognitively impaired from all these things I'm going to talk about here today. So the brain is more fussy. More stuff to know about keeping the brain in uh, functional order because you want your brain to be optimal. You don't want to just, you know, be able to dress yourself without assistance. OK. All right. So now here's a normal capillary in the brain. The art, the these are the red blood cells here. They're traveling from this side towards the other side. Notice how they're a little bit folded back on themselves. That's what we mean by RBC deformability. Then they, they need to do that to be able to deliver their oxygen and to be able to fit through the capillary. Because again, they're about seven microns diameter. Typical capillary is about five microns in diameter. It's smaller. These little blue circles are the oxygen passing from the RBCs to the tissue. Here's a neuron. Okay, here's a neuron cell body. Here's a neuron axon. All right, so this would be good oxygen delivery. These are the smooth muscle cells at the capillary level in the brain. These are called pericytes. You just think of them as being like vascular smooth muscle cells. It's essentially the same thing for our purposes. Okay, these are the endothelial cells, sort of spindle shape with their long axis orientated along the direction of flow. Okay, everything is nice and copacetic. And here's the, uh, the, the basement membrane endothelium. So it's all beautiful. That's how it works under normal conditions. Okay, now here is a patient with diabetes or, hyper, or hypertension. The diabetics especially get thickening of this endothelial basement membrane. When that becomes thicker, it's more difficult to deliver oxygen to the neuron. They'll get hypertrophy of their vascular smooth muscle cells. They'll also get fibrosis, scarring, collagen um, accumulation in this wall, making these, wall, these artery walls less able to adjust their amount of vasodilation for neurovascular coupling to couple the amount of oxygen and glucose being delivered to the tissue based on its activity. That's a problem because the brain needs tons and tons of energy delivery. So you see how they're progressing and progressing towards a bigger problem here, thickening this plasma basement membrane, heaping up these accumulating. See how there's more of these green vascular smooth muscle cells than there were up here. 
All of these things are damaging the ability of this artery to deliver flow. And this is what I meant by hypertension. Hypertension causes hypertrophy of these vascular smooth muscles and it causes fibrosis being laid down in the arterial wall, decreasing one's ability to get oxygen to this neuron. This neuron doesn't get enough oxygen and glucose and that goes on for a prolonged amount of time. It can't meet its metabolic demands. It will die, okay? All right, this is just going into a little more uh, detail. Uh, by the way, fat, high fat meals are very damaging to the blood brain barrier. They're damaging to the intestinal barrier, you know, pr progressing towards leaky gut. And when you get blood brain barrier dysfunction, um, you can get toxic chemicals leaping, leaking in between the endothelial cells, the lining cells of the brain, arteries, and capillaries, and getting into the brain parenchyma, causing damage, uh, disrupting the normal ionic microenvironment milieu. Not good. Um, you'll have problems with transporting your beta amyloid protein out of the brain. Normally it's transported out of the brain into the vessels, and then it's excreted in the liver and the kidney, but you will have problems doing that. This right here, this LRP receptor is important for transporting beta amyloid out of the brain. And that gets sort of downregulated, decreased in numbers of its availability and production um, in the setting of this chronic vascular disease. All right. Um, beta amyloid will start to accumulate in the wall and that can cause um, eventually little micro bleeds into the brain. That's one of the mechanisms of that. Um, all right. So, oh, by the way, too, these are the GLUT1 transporters, glucose type 1 transporters, GLUT1 here. They show a negative, meaning that that's decreased in number. Normally, you have a lot of GLUT1s on your endothelial cells. So the endothelial cells can get their glucose and glucose can pass on into the brain. So you start having decreased ability to deliver glucose across these endothelial cells. Plus another problem is hyperglycemia can lead to downregulation of the receptors, but the, you, you can't effectively, you can't effectively regulate how much glucose goes into the brain endothelial cells. That ends up being a big deal because they can't effectively regulate how much glucose they take up. These endothelial cells of the brain, they can become overwhelmed with chronic prolonged hyperglycemia. It's a, it's a big deal. It's bad. All right, here's another look at the neurovascular unit or the capillary of the brain, if you will. Here's the lumen where the, the blood flows, where the red blood cells are traveling. Here's a cell around them. Endo means inside. So it's the inner layer cell, endothelium. Um, those are the ones that make nitric oxide to keep things vasodilated. The nitric oxide is a gas. It diffuses to the pericyte, which is the equivalent of a vascular smooth muscle cell. And that makes it relax and dilate. Okay. Um, Let's see what else is important to know. Here's a neuron, really high metabolic activity. Oligodendrocyte is a cell that myelinates it. There's little fat layers around it that actually end up speeding up conduction, ability to send a message through the neuron. Astrocytes make ApoE. And uh, there's different types. ApoE2 and 3 are the ones that are okay. ApoE4 is the bad one because it slows down the ability to transport beta amyloid protein out of the brain. And so when you got a homozygous parent, you know, meaning that both their mother and their father copies of the gene are ApoE4, they got less ability to transport it out. So they're more at risk to get Alzheimer's at a younger age. But the good news is when a person eats the optimal diet and avoids these toxins, they're unlikely to ever get Alzheimer's, even if they got, you know, homozygous ApoE4, all right? Um, okay, so th this article is basically talking about here, if the person avoids diabetes and hypertension and the related atherosclerosis, they'll probably keep good cognitive function. And if they don't, they're probably going to become, you know, cognitively impaired at a young age. All right. All right. So this is just showing how the brain removes beta amyloid. The beta amyloid is taken in this L LRP receptor 
And then that transports it across the blood brain barrier into the regular blood. And then it can go on off to the liver and kidney and be excreted. On the other hand, you can take beta amyloid from the periphery and transport it into the brain. There's something called a rage receptor. What that really means is receptor for advanced glycation end products. The same one associated with advanced glycation end products and diabetes. And that will actually send the beta amyloid, amyloid protein retrograde back into the brain. You don't want that. That's bad. Okay. So this is what happens when you got chronic diabetes and, and hypertension. And they've called, uh, rightfully so, so-called Alzheimer dementia is like type 3 diabetes. Like I'm telling you, like 90% of the, the demented people I see have it. All right. Now, here's something I think is really cool. This is important. What I'm about to say, you want to remember this. Here is some damage to the blood-brain barrier, which happens from high-fat diets. It happens for a couple other reasons too, but it happens from with ischemia, diabetes, hypertension. So you get a breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. Some of the clotting protein from the blood called uh, fibrin and thrombin, they will get into the subendothelial space in contact with the brain parenchyma, the extracellular matrix, for example. You also get a little hemoglobin. You can get a little bit of localized bleeding in there, iron accumulation. You don't want free iron accumulating though, because <clears throat> we'll talk about free iron, but it's dangerous. It has a variable valence. It's a transitional metal. It can be typically Fe2 plus Fe3 plus because that can generate um, autocatalytic oxidative stress, which just means it makes everything a lot worse. All right. All right. So, but this is an important point. The thrombin and the fibrin can get through gaps in the blood-brain barrier when it is uh, not functional and they are going to cause problems. They're going to cause precipitation of the beta amyloid and that makes it more damaging. Okay. All right. So what I'm basically saying is here's how the game works. You're basically fighting a battle to maintain your blood-brain barrier and your endothelium, your neurovascular unit. And this is a long battle. It goes on from, you know, typically about the age of 30 to about the age of 60 or so or longer. And you want to protect it because it's kind of asymptomatic. Like a lot of people, they don't really feel anything initially with hypertension. They don't feel anything initially. Well, I'm a little cognitively slow. I got a little bit of brain fog, but I'm doing okay. All right. And then once this blood brain barrier has been chronically damaged and chronically poor at delivering oxygen and glucose, you just have progressive cognitive decline. So this might be subjective cognitive impairment, SCI, and this might be more headed towards MCI, you know, mild cognitive impairment where there's objective confirmation of you can do a cognitive test on them and they don't do so well. And so this is more of a bigger battle. All right. So the smart move is just prevent the whole thing. If you know what you're doing, it's easy to do. Okay. Um, and a typical example, you know, we talked about this before, the Tara Humada eating their plant-based diet. Pritikin was amazed by these guys, you know, running hundred miles in two days, once a year at their big holiday. And they were eating lots of corn, beans, and squash, very rarely meat. You know, there's no 100% vegan uh, native occurring uh, population. But, you know, the way I see it, the reason why I recommend 100% vegan for regular people is because we've already accumulated lots of toxins in our body, have accumulated atherosclerosis and other problems. And we want to be on a diet that I would call curative. We have to sort of catch up and heal. Um, so, you know, if you just went 95% plant-based since the day you were born, you'd be in pretty good shape. But for most of us, we ate the sad diet when we were younger or some other poor diet. And what I'm saying is the Pima, they were mixed with the Tarahumata in Northern Mexico. 1848, Mexican-American War, these populations got separated. Pima absorbed in Arizona. They eat a standard American diet. They're really fat and sick. Tons of gallstones, appendicitis, you know, colon cancer, diverticulitis, diabetes leading to amputations open heart surgery. I mean, why would anybody want to do this to themselves? The reason people do this is because they don't know any better. And then sometimes because they're addicted to all the junk food. But once you know better, why do that to yourself? All right, here's how cells work. Um, this right here is the 
this means potassium, sodium, ATPase. K is for kalium, that's Latin for potassium. N is for natrium, that's Latin for sodium. It uses ATP to pump, okay? So it pumps out three sodiums, pumps in two potassium. You're pumping out more positive charge than what you're bringing in. So you get a negative net charge inside the cell. Typically a neuron in the ballpark of negative 65 millivolts. <laughs> By the way, two thirds of the neurons ATP is used to run this pump. And that indicates it's super important. It basically produces a battery across the plasma membrane, the outer membrane of a brain cell, a neuron. And you know, having charge separation across a barrier is a battery, okay? And the movement of these ions in and out, that's a current, okay? And it enables work to be done. So you establish this grading because you pumped out all the sodium. So there's far more sodium out here, 10 times as much as there is inside the cell. And that way the movement of sodium can be coupled to doing other things. So if you allow sodium to come in, you can couple that to pumping out calcium. All right, and so the reason why this is, this is the dominant thing because there's tons more of these potassium sodium ATP pumps, okay? So that's why all these other things are relatively small in number and they can do this work because you're you, whenever you pump against a, a big gradient, you need energy provided. This is primary active transport using ATP. This is secondary active transport, meaning that it benefits from the ATP used over here to establish this sodium gradient. So this is a sodium concentration gradient and then the electric charge makes it also an electric gradient. So it's called an electrochemical gradient. And the key thing is you gotta be able to pump out the calcium fast. Calcium is an on off switch. When the calcium comes in, the cell does something. So when a calcium comes into a neuron, the cell releases its neurotransmitter. Calcium comes in, you get a big cytoplasm concentration of calcium. That'll cause the muscle to contract, skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle, smooth muscle. That's really important to know. You got to know that. Calcium is where it's at. You know, like the Lord of the Rings, one, one ring to rule them all. Calcium is the ion that controls everything, okay? The amount of calcium you eat actually doesn't really affect this much because the concentration of calcium outside the cell is so overwhelmingly high compared to inside the cell. It's not even funny. It's about 15,000 times higher than it is inside the cell. So this is more a matter of tightly adjusted intracellular. This is a cytoplasm concentration of calcium that is very tightly regulated. All right, here's a typical neuron in the brain, cell body over here. Here's the axon hillock, the beginning of the axon. The action, action potential, the impulse, electrical impulse is transmitted down the axon to the synaptic terminal. NT is for neurotransmitter. The neurotransmitter vesicle will then travel to the plasma membrane of the synaptic cleft. It'll merge with it, release its neurotransmitter. The neurotransmitter diffuses across the synaptic cleft and exerts an effect on the postsynaptic neuron. That's how brain uh, cells communicate. Okay, and that action potential, you know, you got the sodium right here coming into the cell, depolarizing it, changing the charge inside, and that will activate these voltage-gated calcium channels. And then they will then, when the calcium accumulates in the synaptic terminal area, cause the neurotransmitter to be released across the synaptic cleft. That's how brain cells work, okay? Notice that calcium plays the crucial role in getting this to happen. Okay, now another important point about brain cells is if you read all the textbooks, they're all wrong. By the way, I kind of consider med medical textbooks, you know, and physiology textbooks like a big joke, okay? They're always wrong. They're not even sometimes wrong. They're always wrong on the most important things, all right? Here, they just have this old information that, you know, sort of like baby talk. All right, you got glucose type one transporters on the blood brain barrier across your endothelial cells. You got glucose type three transporters on your neurons. What that means, glucose type one and type three is that they don't need insulin. They're independent of insulin, okay? And everybody used to think, oh, well, that's all you got in your brain. So insulin's irrelevant to the brain. No, no, no. Your brain neurons also have glucose type four transporters. For example, in your hippocampus, in your um, substantia nigra, Parkinson's disease area. So 
insulin has a major effect on the amount of glucose that gets into these neurons. So when you've got insulin resistance in the periphery, you know, meaning the part of your body outside of the nervous system, you've also got a problem with insulin resistance in your brain cells and they can't get enough glucose in. So remember that they can't get enough glucose in because of the insulin resistance through these glucose type four transporters, and that's going to damage these brain cells. Okay. So when I look at cognitively impaired people, you know, the worst cognitive impaired patients on a chronic basis are these kidney failure patients. All right. But the next worst, because they got a lot of things going wrong with them. All right. And they usually, you know, far along diabetes, hypertension, et cetera, brain ischemia, other types of problems. But the other group of patients are these diabetics. I've had internal medicine friends tell me every single one of their patients over 60, they're all cognitively slow. <clears throat> and almost all of them are pre-diabetic or diabetic. And I, I see it all the time. And I talk to diabetics, you know, and I'm doing procedures on them. You know, I try to help them and teach them a little bit about diet. And they're just like, what are you going to do at my age? You know, and I'm just like, you know, you're letting yourself fade away. I wouldn't do that. All right. So anyways, we're going to come back to that. Brain cells have GLUT4s that are insulin dependent. Okay. Here's a typical neuron, releases its neurotransmitter, it binds with a receptor on the postsynaptic neuron, exerts an effect. And then the neurotransmitter is taken up from the cleft, for example, through a reuptake transporter back into the presynaptic cell, it can be packaged into vesicles for reuse. All right, so here is a SSRI, serotonin selective reuptake inhibitor, and you can block this reuptake. That'll keep the neurotransmitter in the cleft a prolonged amount of time. But the problem is, have you ever heard Klaper give one of his lectures saying you can't do one thing? He's right. In the brain, you can't. If you keep having higher, let's say serotonin or some other neurotransmitter in the synaptic cleft, there's going to be a compensatory adaptation of the postsynaptic cell. It'll make fewer receptors. For example, that's one thing it might do. It might make more serotonin reuptake uh, transporters or for whatever the neurotransmitter we're talking about for the particular drug or patient. So you're going to get these synaptic changes and it might even seem, well, this is that really that big of a deal. I'll tell you why it's a big deal. Typical synapse is not that simple. It's not just two neurons connecting to each other. Quite often, there's multiple other synapses involved affecting that postsynaptic neuron. And it gets rather complicated. It's like a big symphony. And when you can sometimes end up in a place where you didn't want to end up anymore, you're not in Kansas anymore. And so that's why I think a lot of these psych drugs are very dangerous because people will stay on them a long time. They're going to get these compensatory adaptations and they're at risk for excitotoxicity. So obviously it depends on the situation. You do have patients with you know, acute psychotic breakdowns that really need to be sedated. But I'm just saying is neuropsych drugs are a major risk factor for cognitive impairment that is underrecognized. And there's some pretty famous psychiatrists, if you study the subject, who have described it as a gradual chemical lobotomy. Okay, And they're sometimes even doing surgical lobotomies now for chronic refractory depression. And there's <clears throat> even sometimes um, so-called electric lobotomy, you know, of electroshock theory, electroconvulsive theory. And the effect of food and mood on these things is underrecognized. The effect of toxins is underrecognized and their effect on the brain affecting moods, okay? The effect of ischemia, okay? So I'm not saying there's a lot of the patients, they've got an acute event, they're sad about something, you know, a relationship breakup, a disappointment or something else, et cetera. So that's a complex subject, but I'm just saying is don't think a lot of these problems can be solved that effectively. It's not that simple, all right? Now I'm gonna talk a little bit about calcium metabolism. Calcium metabolism is a giant big deal. It's not widely known, but it's super important. We just talked about the management of sodium and potassium, okay? By the way, there's tons of sodium in processed food and hardly any potassium or magnesium. In plants, there's tons of potassium and magnesium. That's what you want. Most Americans are deficient in potassium and magnesium. You need magnesium to run all these ATP reactions. I, I think I got a picture of it later. It holds the phosphates together on an ATP. It's positive charge, Mg2+, 
helps hold those strongly negative uh, phosphates. You know, think of those as being a couple stallions and, you know, you're just trying to hold them together so they don't pop off because they're real powerful. The negative repulsive power of those phosphates is why you put one on something and that big negative charge changes the, the shape of that protein. So that's why I can exert an effect and do useful work. Okay. So anyways, um, you'll have calcium inside the cell in the cytoplasm when it gets high, causes a neuron to release its neurotransmitter, causes the pineal gland to release melatonin to help us sleep and does some other good things. It's also a good antioxidant. It'll cause the mast cells of the immune system to release histamine. It'll cause the pancreas when cytoplasm calcium is high to release insulin. I talked about making all the muscles contract. Okay. It activates platelets. Okay. Um, here's how you pump it out. You pump it out with a NACA exchanger. NACA stands for NA is for sodium. CA is for the calcium. You can all abbreviate it NCX, and that's super fast at pumping out calcium. Here's the PMCA, plasma membrane calcium ATPase. That's a little slower at pumping out calcium, but they're both useful. And this is how it works. And then the other thing is circa. You need to know circa. This is an important word here. Sarcoplasm, endoplasmic reticulum, calcium ATPase. The word sarcoplasm really refers to muscle. Every other cell would just call it endoplasmic reticulum. And that is where you have the major storage of calcium inside a cell. And it's typically bound to calcium binding proteins like calcium, but this is a giant reservoir of calcium when a cell needs to get more calcium for something. Okay. You need to know that. And it's lots of things inhibit circa. And if you inhibit circa, that means you can't pump calcium out of your cytoplasm effectively, meaning that you'll have chronic prolonged uh, calcium in your cytoplasm. The other thing is if you eat too much dietary sodium, you end up messing up these gradients because your body has to maintain a fixed amount of these positive ions, these cations. And the more sodium you eat, the more you're going to urinate out. You're going to void out your uh, potassium and you're going to start dissipating these gradients. And as you gradually dissipate these gradients, meaning that you'll have less of a differential between your extracellular sodium and your intracellular sodium, usually it's about tenfold gradient, you're going to have less pumping ability for pumping out your calcium, meaning you're going to have chronic elevated intracytoplasmic, you know, intracellular calcium. And that's what's happening with hypertension. People are eating too much salt. It impairs the function of their endothelium nitric oxide. And it leads to chronically, also chronically high uh, vascular smooth muscle concentrations of calcium. So you stay contracted in the muscles and the walls of your arteries. So you have to pump blood through a, con a constricted, contracted system. Pressure has to go up. Okay. That's what sodium is all about. All right. And then the fat makes the blood pressure go up because the fat's sticking the red blood cells together. So you're pumping a milkshake through the system um, instead of pumping, you know, water through the system, if you will. So you see the double screw job from eating a high fat meal with high sodium. You constrict your system and you make your blood thick. So your heart's like, crap, why are you doing this to me? Got to pump harder, got to pump higher pressure. Okay, here's a normal cell body at rest. Calcium concentration is super low, like we said. It's like 15,000 times higher extracellular calcium than intracellular, all right? So that's why when this bumps up, it makes all kinds of things happen. Okay, here's just showing how calcium can come into the cell. For example, here's glutamate. That's the excitatory neurotransmitter of the brain. About 80% of brain neurotransmitters are glutamate, and it causes an excitatory effect. Uh, glutamate will bind the ampere receptor that lets sodium in, that depolarizes the cell. Then there was a magnesium in here in this green thing. I drew it here, but got clipped off. The magnesium bounces out of the center of the NMDA receptor for glutamate, excuse me, and then calcium is let in through the NMDA receptor. That's just the name of the receptor. The relevance is magnesium from plants normally likes to live right here in the center of the channel for the NMDA receptor for glutamate, and that protects you because it doesn't let calcium come in unless there's a good reason. 
when sodium depolarizes the cell, meaning sodium comes in and makes the charge more positive inside the cell, that means magnesium is no longer so attracted to the center of the cell and the magnesium will bounce out. And that opens the path for calcium to rush in and come into the cell. I show you glycine on here as well because they're co-activators of this receptor here, the glutamate and the glycine. Glycine, they're both amino acids. The relevance is, think about that stuff they spray on non-organic food, glyphosate. Well, guess what? It has It's glycine connected to a phosphate. It can bind and help activate the NMD receptor. So overstimulation of a cell is called excitotoxicity. So you want to remember that. That's an important word, excitotoxicity, because you're going to ramp up the metabolic rate, okay? The more you ramp up a metabolic rate, you better be able to ramp up the oxygen and glucose delivery, because if you don't, and this gap gets too big, this brain cell is going to die, okay? I'm going to go into that in much more detail, and that's partly my whole theory of neurovascular uncoupling. Um, Glutamate can do other things too. It can bind what are called metabotropic. These are ionotropic, only let ions in. This is metabotropic, metabotropic, meaning it interacts with a whole bunch of other enzyme pathways as a way to amplify its effects, okay? We don't need to go into all that, but what you need to know is when you activate a neuron, you let calcium into the cytoplasm. It can come also from the endoplasmic reticulum to help activate it. And when you want to turn off a neuron, you pump it out of the neuron, or you can pump it out into the extracellular matrix, or you can pump it into the endoplasmic reticulum. Okay, so here's a typical uh, moment of neuronal activity. The glutamate neurotransmitter stored in vesicles within the synaptic terminal. Uh, calcium comes in, activates the cell. The glutamate merges with the plasma membrane. It'll diffuse across the synaptic cleft. It'll bind to the AMPA receptors initially, letting sodium in, depolarizing the cell so it's not so negatively charged. The magnesium will pop out of the NMDA receptor. Now calcium can come into the cell. And in normal amounts, that's good. That's what you want to have happen. But if you overstimulate this cell, for example, caffeine causes increased glutamate release. Psychological stress causes increased glutamate release. Sleep deprivation causes increased glutamate release. All right, so you could overstimulate this postsynaptic neuron. You don't want to do that, but you could do that very well. And if you're simultaneously overstimulating this postsynaptic neuron with tons of glutamate going across this cleft here, and you got your glycine from your glyphosate activating this receptor as well. Oops, I meant to stay on there a little longer. Um, you get calcium too high, you'll start activating enzymes you don't want to activate, including calpain, which is a great name. Cal as in calcium, pain as in causes painful consequences. And that will inactivate, for example, the NCX, the knockout exchanger for pumping out calcium. And you now can create a vicious cycle that can spiral into the destruction of this neuron and, and make it die. Okay. Um, <clears throat> that's important. And here's a circa inhibitor. Here's a circa pump pumping calcium out of the cytoplasm into the endoplasmic reticulum here. And that's good, but there's a lot of things that inhibit circa. We're going to talk about that in a moment. All right. And, you know, I'll give you a rule of thumb. If something smells bad, it's bad for you. All right. If you're walking down the street and there's a factory and it smells bad, that's bad. Okay. Avoid that as much as you can. If you're walking down the street and a bus goes by pumping out a bunch of diesel exhaust, avoid that as best you can. It's, uh, it's neurotoxic. Okay. I can tell you these tend to lead to, um, these are called volatile organic chemicals. In general, think of anything that transitions rapidly from a liquid to a solid as being a volatile organic chemical. It's an oversimplification, but that's useful enough. Like a paint, okay? The paint comes out of the container liquid and it dries on the wall. It's giving off volatile organic compounds, all right? You want to avoid it. A glue, an adhesive, they tend to all be doing something similar to that. And there's, there's plenty of other ones too, benzene, et cetera. A lot of these petroleum chemicals. And it's been shown that they tend to generate increased reactive oxygen species, ROS, and those can cause oxidative stress. Oxidative stress just means there's an imbalance between more oxidants 
um, and not enough antioxidants, okay? So you're gonna see this happens all the time. Well, gee, you wanna avoid the oxidants, things like iron that's common in meat, plus they add it to a lot of foods, and you wanna get the stuff you get from plant, the antioxidants, okay? The way I can remember antioxidants, think about a plant. Let's say you're in the middle of a big field, a big grassy field. There's just you and then there's some flowers around you, okay? If it gets really hot, 100 degrees from the sun shining, shining down on you, what are you gonna do? You're gonna go, oh, it's too hot. You're gonna go walk under, under the shade of a tree. You're gonna go inside a building where it's cooler. The plant can't do it. The flowers can't do that. They have to use chemicals, antioxidants, to protect themselves from the overpowering heat of the sun. And when you eat the plant, you get the antioxidants. If you eat an animal, there's hardly any antioxidants because the animals used them up already. So you get your antioxidants from plants. Okay, these are just a bunch of things that are associated with decreased circle function. Obesity in general, they're gonna have decreased circle function, sleep apnea, uh, hyperlipidemia. Uh, diabetes, the glycation products will glycate the circa and make it non-functional. Uh, in general, the higher the hemoglobin A1C, the lower the circa function, you know, that ability to pump calcium from the cytoplasm into the endoplasmic reticulum, meaning you have less ability to make your neurons turn themselves off and shut down when they need to. All these heavy metals, they tend to be toxic to the mitochondria and the circa, they're bad, okay? You don't wanna move next to coal burning electric plant, okay? I, I, I've known families where they got a big, you know, they're bragging about what a great deal they got on a piece of property, right next to coal burning electric plant. I told them, don't move there. And everybody says, I'm a jerk. I'm just jealous because they bought a nice piece of land. And I'm like, no, I'm telling you the truth. Okay, nobody likes the truth, but that's the truth, all right? And, and it caused them a lot of problems. I'm not gonna go into details, but it caused major problems for their family living next to the coal burning electric plant. Um, let's see what else. Seafood, a lot of times that's all polluted. All right, I'm not gonna go into every one of these. You can read it later if you want, but I think you get the point. A lot of things have a negative effect on circa. Like look at processed foods. They're toxic to circa uh, from their preservatives. Okay, you know, preservatives a lot of times are antifungal, okay? They don't want mold growing on the food because it gets sent back to the company that made it. They lose money. But they tend to also be toxic to mitochondria and to uh, circa. That's bad. You need those things, okay? Food dyes, like red number three, it's toxic to circa in your brain. Not good. Some of these other food dyes, they all inhibit mitochondria. Not good. You know, there's one thing is called the mitochondrial theory of aging. It's thought to be the most common reason we age. There's more to it than that. But the point I'm going to make is these are all bad. I don't even like it when somebody's grilling meat. Cooking oil fumes can make you sick. Grilling meat can make you sick from the benzopyrene. Okay, these are all toxic to circa. Volatile organic compounds like we talked about, paints, glues, adhesive. All this stuff is toxic. You don't want these air fresheners in your house. You don't want to be using deodorant. The worst is a spray-on deodorant with aluminum. You spray it in your armpit and it goes right inhaled through your cranial nerve olfactory nerve goes right to your entorhinal cortex. Okay, that's the stupidest thing. You're inhaling aluminum right into your entorhinal cortex by your hippocampus. Not smart. Okay, all these uh, halogens tend to be toxic. Like, you know, you want chlorine to sanitize your water until it gets to your house, but it's good to have a carbon water filter in your house so you can get the chlorine out. Okay, I like having a reverse osmosis filter too because I want to get the F minus out. That inhibits circa and it also inhibits mitochondria. It's toxic, okay? All that stuff about teeth, that's a total exaggeration. All right, um, TCE, dry cleaning chemical also causes Parkinson's disease. So these chemicals, you know, they're pretty toxic. You know, that's why I don't take my clothes to dry cleaning. Okay, my wife tells me I look like a slob. I got a ring around my collar. I could care less. Who cares? Okay, I'm an old man. Nobody cares what I look like. Got a little ring around my collar. I got a wrinkle on my shirt. So what? Okay, my brain is sharp. That's what I care about. Okay, um, alcohol is stupid. It's not even good to have one cup a day. Zero alcohol is best. Um, 
these estrogenic chemicals, we're going to talk about them. They're much more dangerous than people think. And I'm also going to tell you something. I think the vegan community is a big step ahead of conventional uh, medicine community in terms of knowing the benefits of the vegan diet. But I'm going to tell you, I think the vegan community is screwing up in a major way. The vegan community knows about the benefit of diet, but they don't know almost anything about toxicology. Hardly anybody I know besides myself is talking about toxicology. It's a giant thing. And instead of whining, say, oh, no, I got to learn more stuff. Look at it as an opportunity. You can help your friends, your family, yourself by learning this stuff. And it's easy to learn. All you got to do is pay attention. It's right here. It's easy. Okay. Nanoparticles like titanium dioxide and sunscreens. Another thing that's going to come out of this is the way to live, in my opinion, to be optimally healthy, it's kind of like these blue zone people. They're kind of rural. They, you know, they live in, you know, podunk, okay? You want to be simple like Adam and Eve, except, you know, keep your indoor heating and plumbing. Avoid all these chemicals. We're not made for them. Humans are not made for that, okay? Think of yourself like an animal in the wild. You don't want all these chemicals on yourself. You take a bar of soap, you put it by your dog's nose, your dog's like, get away from me, okay? You should have the same response to chemicals, all right? I see so many people working with toxic chemicals, and they close their door and they just sit there. You know, if you have to work with toxic chemicals because of your job, open the door, open the window, get a fan. Okay. Atrazine, not only toxic to uh, mitochondria, it's also toxic. It's also an endocrine disruptor and it's also a circa uh, inhibitor. All right. Um, they, they cause all kinds of problems. These circa inhibitors, here's something a lot of people don't know. A lot of people got diabetes, they contribute to increased insulin resistance. They increase something called endoplasmic reticulum stress. So they're bad for your pancreas. That's important to know because you want to do everything you can to improve your pancreatic beta cell function. So a lot of people have wised up. They're eating a low-fat, uh, low-sodium vegan diet. But you can also improve your pancreas function, potentially, maybe, by avoiding circa inhibitors. Also, aluminum is toxic to the pancreas. A lot of people don't know that. Aluminum is toxic to the pancreatic beta cells. Omega-6 cooking oils are toxic to the pancreatic beta cells. So you see what I'm saying? You know, Avoiding fat, especially saturated fat, that'll help your pancreas. But Avoid circa inhibitors, avoid aluminum. Uh, this, these extra steps, avoid omega-6 fats. That's the Yamashima theory. All these things might help you. That's what you want to do. If you want to try to hit that threshold, well, you sometimes get a big benefit. Sometimes too, you can do two things and not get much of a benefit, but you do the third thing. And even though it might be small in and of itself, it tips you over a threshold. So it's worth a try. And I, I'm a big believer too. You should try to be the best you can be. A lot of people are very half-assed. They're like, well, at least I'm not as fat as my cousin. You know, so what if I have a little bit of oil or a little bit of meat or this other junk food? Do whatever you want. It's your life. But in my experience, people like that don't do well. Um, and I said this before too, the proper way to think about nutrition. Nutrition is not social, going to a party where you don't know anybody, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, you know, everything in moderation, you know, go with the flow. No, it's like biblical, thou shalt not eat meat, thou shalt not eat oil. And people say, well, why are you so extreme? Why are you so intense? Why are you so strict about it? You're no fun. You're like a robot. I say, look, because you, know, you want to get better. Okay, all these people are blind. They're stupid. They're impotent. Okay, it's sad. You want to end up like that. Do whatever you want. But if you want to have the best chance of good odds, I'm 60 years old. I have zero medical problems. Okay, I can concentrate all day long. I had all these doctor friends of mine. They're fat. They're sick. They're tired. They look old and, you know, they can't concentrate. Okay. I don't take any pills. I don't want to ever take a pill the rest of my life. If I can avoid it, I hope not. I've never had a surgery. I hope not. I'll never need one. Who knows? But I hope not. I'm going to try not to have to. Okay. Problems associated with decreased circa function. Well, when you start accumulating calcium, you can injure your mitochondria. Um, you can cause weakness in your skeletal muscles. Nobody wants that. All right. Well, anyways, it causes a lot of problems. The main thing we care about for our talk, though, is it increases the risk of dementia. What can you do to improve circa function? Avoid all those things that damage it. Exercise a lot. Like I said, exercise just makes everything in the brain better. 
get your sunshine, eat your plant foods. That's where you get your potassium and your magnesium. That's where you get your antioxidants. All that stuff helps protect circa. Handle your stress, learn how to handle it. I like being kind of stoic. You know, the quote I always remember to myself is a man should be like a cliff. All day long, the waves crash against the bottom of the cliff, but the cliff is not moved. There's always going to be a bunch of stupid, annoying things that happen every day. And you're going to have to deal with some obnoxious, rude people. Like when I was a young guy, I'd get offended. That person is so rude. Why did you say that? That's that's not fair. That's not right. Now I'm like, okay, this person's a stupid idiot. I only got to talk to them for 30 seconds. I'll just be polite. And then I never have to talk to them again. Okay. So I don't, I don't take it on myself. I don't get emotionally involved. Um, and Aristotle had said, the first step to an intelligent conversation is to remove emotions, remain objective. So that type of stoic uh, philosophy, I find that very helpful to constantly deal because I deal with a lot of complicated things all day long and emotionally sad things, but I sort of, I'm not emotionally involved. I'm just objectively thinking what's the best thing to do in this situation. And I think that helps. Okay, avoid unnecessary stress, reframe your attitude, like have an attitude of gratitude, for example. Okay. And the circa inhibitors, they can get themselves into a vicious cycle of, of positive feedback, making everything worse from diabetes, Circa inhibition, worsening diabetes, the diabetes, advanced glycation end products, worsening circa. And you can get yourself stuck on this treadmill of worsening and worsening diabetes. So break out of it. Do the things we just talked about. Go low fat, okay? Get your potassium. Avoid your sodium, okay? Avoid aluminum, okay? Avoid circa inhibitors. Avoid omega-6 oils, all those things that cause increased insulin resistance. That's a way to try to break out of the cycle and optimize your health. Okay, now here's my theory of dementia, the Peter Rogers theorem of dementia. I also call it the neurovascular uncoupling theory. And what it basically comes down to is, imagine here's your brain neuron, you got a baseline metabolic activity, and then you get oxygen and glucose delivery. So if you have a stimulant, like we talked about caffeine, psychological stress, sleep deprivation, aspartame, NutraSweet, you know, all that stuff, you're ramping up metabolic activity. If you simultaneously decrease the oxygen and glucose delivery, sodium, vasoconstriction, decreasing it, high fat meal, decreasing oxygen, glucose delivery, about 15%. Caffeine is also a vasoconstrictor, can decrease oxygen, glucose delivery, about 15% potentially, especially to frontal lobes. Um, the wider this gap gets, and let's say you throw in atrial fibrillation, overtreated hypertension, you get this gap too far, these neurons, they just go into programmed cell death, apoptosis, okay? And that's a major cause of brain damage. Like I see, all these brains I'm seeing, they're all shrunken and atrophic. Um, I hardly ever see them due to strokes, okay? And we can't we can't see, you can't see with a microscope even the apoptotic nurse, there's just less neurons there than there should be. Iron overload makes it worse because you get oxidative stress and that damages cells. We talked about circ inhibitors. And one of the points I'm gonna make, mitochondria inhibitors, CERC inhibitors, um, they're all kind of leading to the same thing in excitotoxins, excess amounts of calcium in that cytoplasm. I'm going to explain that in more detail in just a moment, okay? Um, and there's tons of things toxic to the brain. I'm going to go through all this in more point, but let's say you, you decrease the mitochondrial's, mitochondrial's ability to produce ATP with a mitochondrial inhibitor. Well, then you're not going to be able to meet your energy demands for your cell. You're predisposing that, that neuron to cell death, okay? All right, so here's the old saying. The old saying is everything leads to Rome, okay? And, and, and who knows in how many ways, who knows? All right, so here's the point. All the roads lead to Rome. So what am I getting at? All these damaging things lead to increased cytoplasm calcium, okay? And you could even call this the calcium theory of brain damage. Lack of oxygen delivery to the brain cell, ischemia is going to cause increased cytoplasm calcium. Excess dietary sodium contributes to this. Lack of dietary potassium and magnesium contributes to this. 
leaky gut gums leading to, I'm going to go into the mechanism of this is a Douglas Kell and Atheresia Pretorius theory. Um, I talked about excitotoxins. I talked about circa inhibitors over here. I briefly mentioned mitochondrial inhibitors. I'm going to show you the mitochondrial inhibitors, I believe, coming up very soon. Uh, traumatic brain injury does the same thing, increases uh, cytoplasmic calcium. Cell phones, Wi-Fi, the EMF opens up voltage-gated calcium channels, which also contributes to this. Um, you know, like kids should not sleep with their cell phone next to their head. And that's a stupid thing to do. You should talk to the speakerphone, not be holding it up to your head. Um, and then there's also something called the, the no oh no pathway, the nitric oxide and then peroxynitrate pathway. That's a little complicated. We're not going to get into that today, but just be aware of it. Volatile organic compounds can activate this. Uh, some infections can, and this goes down that path to a multiple chemical sensitivities, chronic fatigue syndrome. This is sort of, that's a big esoteric topic, but I'm just letting you know that also ends up down this pathway of increased cytoplasm calcium, excessive psychological stress, sleep deprivation, caffeine, they all elevate the same hormones, cortisol and the catecholamines, adrenaline and noradrenaline, same thing as epinephrine and norepinephrine. And these are what I meant by excitotoxins, increasing glutamate transmission across the synapse. MSG, manufactured glutamate, which is like MSG, aspartame, like NutraSweet, uh, glyphosate, aspartate also, stimulants. Okay, so anyways, all of these things are ramping up your calcium. You don't want to do that, but okay, here's what's beautiful. So at first you see this and you're kind of sad and you're like, oh man, you're making everybody depressed, telling us all these problems. But I'm also showing you the hope. The hope is included in the same slide. Here's the hope. Well, gee, if excess dietary sodium is bad, then I'll avoid it. Good, you can do that. There's things you can do. That's why I like these series. That's why I like my theory of neurovascular uncoupling. That's why I like the deletory theory. That's why I like this theory here of the calcium hypothesis, because it tells you what to do. You know that um, the uh, potassium and the magnesium are vasodilators, and they kind of block the effects of sodium. So eat more plants. You get these from plants. You get this stuff from processed food. Avoid the processed food. All right. Um, I should have put, where's my oxidative stress? So I forgot to include oxidative stress in here. Oxidative stress comes from excess iron. We'll avoid the excess of iron. Avoid the meat. Avoid the, the processed food that have that are so-called iron fortified, that have iron added to it, okay? Uh, avoid the things that cause leaky gut and you won't get this problem here, all right? I'm gonna go into how this happens, this leaky gut problem, but that contributes to brain damage as well. You can avoid all this stuff, excitotoxins, avoid them. Don't eat anything with MSG in them, okay? Don't eat anything with aspartame. Don't eat anything with glyphosate. You could do that. Avoid the circuit inhibitors, you know, avoid anything that smells bad and avoid processed food, okay? Mitochondrial inhibitors, avoid any sport with traumatic brain injury, you know? Like a young guy wants to be strong. Well, you could wrestle. You don't have to do, you know, sparring, kickboxing or something and get hit in the head. That'll make you stupid. You don't want to do that. All right. Okay. I like tennis. You hang around with rich people. Tell your kid to play tennis. Hang around with rich people and you learn, learn that whole environment. Maybe they'll give you a job someday. So here's a mitochondria. Um, golf is good too, but they smell the stuff they spray in their golf courses, maybe atrazine. Intramembranous space between the outer mitochondrial membrane, outer mitochondrial membrane, intramembranous space, inner mitochondrial membrane. There's a mitochondrial matrix, okay? And it's like a fireman's bucket brigade of passing electrons down to the ultimate electron acceptor, oxygen, and that's used to make ATP. And this is how almost all the energy in the human body is made. Okay, and so here is again, complex one, two, three, four. Here's coenzyme Q. That's the one that gets blocked by statins to some degree. Um, cytochrome C, that's actually important for a lot of reasons. But then here's ATP synthase. So this is a normal um, intermitochondrial membrane. It pumps protons into the intermembranous space, creating a gradient, and that's harvested by having them come back in. By the way, this is like the highest gradient in the human body that I'm aware of, negative 160 millivolts. That's an incredibly high gradient. 
All right. In comparison, like typical neuron on its plasma membranes, like negative 65 millivolts. So this is a giant gradient. Once in a while, you'll leak an electron, let's say off a of coenzyme Q, it'll get made into, it'll combine with oxygen, become a superoxide, extra unpaired electron in its outer orbital. But there's superoxide dismutase within the mitochondria that will neutralize it and make it into water and oxygen. Okay. Um, and so I just tell you that this is how it normally happens all day long. This is normal electron transport in the mitochondria to make ATP. That's called oxidative phosphorylation. All right. Now here's all the mitochondrial inhibitors. By the way, this slide right here is like a work of art. I figured this all out from reading tons and tons of different papers. You can't find this. And this is why I'm also going to tell you, you know, I was in love with biochemistry when I was a senior in college and I was a first year medical student. I was like, biochemistry is the language of God that it uses to write the book. If someday I'm going to be a great doctor or scientist, I must learn this. And I thought it was beautiful, aesthetically beautiful. I'd sit in the front row every day and I loved it. I, could, I was excited the day before biochemistry class. I'd read the night before for a couple of hours to try to be ready for the lecture. And the reason I tell you this is because all of these books, I thought I knew biochemistry. They don't have any of this in there. They might not have a single one of these things in here. And these are all common things. So that's what I meant by the books don't teach you useful stuff. You talk to you know a, a, a fourth year medical student, you talk to a, a senior internal medicine resident, you talk to the chief resident, they won't know any of this stuff. None of it. They won't know estrogenic chemicals. They won't know anything about the true history of atherosclerosis, of diabetes, of hypertension. It's pathetic. Okay. And that's what I meant by I was a little pissed off that I worked so hard to try to get well-educated and none of the useful information is in the books. It's almost as if college biochemistry textbooks, medical biochemistry textbooks, and their pathophysiology books, and their internal, internal medicine textbooks, and even neurology books, they're designed to not tell you the useful information. It's ridiculous. Okay. Now let's take a look at this. These are all these things that inhibit your mitochondria. All of these heavy metals, like mercury, lead, for example, cadmium, okay? Um, then you have problems with excess iron in here, transitional metal causing the Fenton reaction leading to oxidative stress. So that's a problem when you become iron overloaded. All right, excessive fat, especially sat fat blocking complex three, it'll cause reversal of electron transport. That's insulin resistance caused with diabetes. All right, that's the most important cause. Atrazine, that endocrine disrupting chemical is also toxic to your mitochondria. So these things all decrease the ability of your mitochondria to make energy, to make ATP. F minus does it from your water. Okay. Yeah. Like you really want that in your body? No, you don't. Okay. Omega-6 cooking oils will tend to lead to oxidative products like uh, this toxic aldehyde, hydroxynonanol. You need to know that HNE, that's going to come up a lot. Um, a lot of these medications that everybody thinks are, are good for you, no big deal. Tylenol. No, it's a mitochondria inhibitor. I won't take a Tylenol. Okay. And I also, I get teased amongst my family and friends. Why are you so afraid of medicines? I'm like, well, I don't need them. Why would I want to take something I don't need? It's going to potentially have a side effect. Almost everything pill has some side effect, even if it's just from a contaminant. Uh, propofol is not the safest thing in the world. Like I went for a colonoscopy many, many, many years ago because my mom died of colon cancer. And I, I haven't gone since. They told me my colon was so normal. It wasn't even funny. And when I went, I refused to be sedated. And everyone made fun of me, said, oh, well, you're going to enjoy it. Don't you want sedation? You're not normal. I'm like, no, I'm just scared of the side effects. What if they give me a benzodiazepine and it has an effect on my memory center? I don't want it. Okay, I'm mentally strong. I can handle it. All right. So anyways, antifungals to prevent mold, typical preservative. It also inhibits complex too. So it interrupts your energy production from your mitochondria. I don't want that. Titanium dioxide is like a whitener typically put in the sunscreens and in pills and lots of things. Nanoparticles potentially crossing the blood brain barrier. I don't want that stuff. A lot of uh, antibiotics, just like they're toxic to bacteria. They're also toxic to human cells. Um, Anti-seizure medicines. Yeah, they slow the brain down so you don't have a seizure, but they potentially also slow down your IQ. Um, Let's see, what else? Uh, all these food dyes, 
uh, Krebs cycle inhibitors, alcohol inhibits Krebs cycle. That's the mitochondrial matrix energy production pathway that sort of feeds into this electron transport chain. Arsenic, um, traumatic brain injury. So what I'm saying is you can avoid almost all of these. So avoid them. And also here's a little secret. These endocrine chemicals like BPA, bisphenol A and the bisphenol related chemicals, BPS and whatnot. They're also mitochondrial inhibitors, okay? And a lot of people say, oh, well, metformin is such a great medicine. It might improve longevity. I wouldn't take it. It inhibits complex one of mitochondria. I don't want that. PCBs, a lot of them in fish, mitochondria inhibitor too. I don't want any of that stuff. There's always somebody trying to sell you something. And my advice, don't be a chump. We don't need that much. We can live like Adam and Eve. Oh, this slide about partially clipped, but this is what I was talking about. Magnesium with its two plus positive charge, it hangs on to that second and third phosphate in ATP and prevents them from, from popping apart from each other. Okay, you want to have a K factor of greater than five. What that means is you should be eating at least, at least a minimum of five times more potassium and sodium. Actually, our ancestors probably ate about 25 times as much potassium as sodium. Okay, so I eat far more than this K factor five. It's just that in hypertensive papers, they'll say, this should be your minimum goal to keep your potassium intake five times greater. I don't ever count it. I just know because I looked at my food one time, figured out what it was. It's far higher than that. There's a lot of foods that are 100, plant foods that are 100 times more potassium than sodium. And then here basically shows the diet. You eat the American high fat diet, you end up with a moderate amount of diabetes, lots of heart attacks, okay? You end up impotent and real high risk of cancer. You eat the East Asian diet, sort of like the Japanese, Korean, Chinese diet at the time, very high in sodium, like 12 grams a day, that caused a lot of hypertension. Plus a lot of them were smoking cigarettes, let's say Japan in the 1970s. So they get a lot of hypertension that led to a lot of strokes, okay, intracranial problems. Um, because they ate a lot of vegetables and were low in fat, they didn't get much myocardial infarction. Remember we talked about the Asian pattern of atherosclerosis intracranial versus the Western pattern, especially, you know, uh, chest, cardiac and uh, carotid and also in the Johnson. Okay, South Asian, like people from India, the problem that got them, this was a surprise to me. I was thinking Indians like real healthy, you know, skinny vegetarians. But what I hadn't realized before was they eat lots of fried food, many of them do, and they eat the dairy, you know, the ghee. And so they have a surprisingly high incidence of diabetes, hypertension, myocardial infarction. They're a lot less healthy than I had thought. And I think the main cause is this high intake oil. And Yamashima, the Japanese neuroscientist, he's the guy who figured out that omega-6 oils contribute to uh, injury to the pancreatic beta cells. And he believes that's a major contributor to why their incidence of diabetes is surprisingly high. Look, low fat, low sodium vegan. You know, you don't have a perfect guarantee from things, but you got the best odds you're going to get to have a low risk of these common medical problems. Okay. So that's, it's a smart way to go. Anybody that studies it will come to that conclusion. You have the lowest risk of all this stuff. Okay. Why does diabetes make people stupid? There's multiple reasons. It's causing a microvasculopathy decrease in oxygen uh, transport at the blood-brain barrier, thick uh, endothelial plasma basement membrane, okay? But another thing it does is there's coupling between the endoplasmic reticulum and the mitochondria. So we talked about the endoplasmic reticulum being a storage site for calcium inside of a cell. And it, they have a component of them, a finger-like projection that extends up to the mitochondria. And these are called MAMs, meaning mitochondrial associated membranes. And the purpose of these things is to rapidly increase activity. Like you're walking through the forest, enjoying yourself. All of a sudden, a couple of coyotes, uh-oh, what am I going to do? Am I going to stand my ground? Am I going to fight? Am I going to run? All right, so you have to rapidly go from zero to 100 miles per hour with your activity in these brain cells and your muscles. And the point is, these MAMs, mitochondria-associated membranes, allow calcium to rapidly move from the endoplasmic reticulum 
into the mitochondrial matrix. And what they do, as soon as they hit the matrix, they cause a upregulation, meaning increased production of these mitochondrial enzymes. So you can run Krebs cycle, also called the TCA cycle, a lot faster and start generating ATP really fast. But here's the point. If you've got insulin resistance, you got glucose type four transporters on um, your plasma membrane over here. I wrote the plasma, I really should be, I should have made a membrane out here, but you see here's your glucose type four transporters and those are blocked because of insulin resistance. You understand how the mitochondria is screwed? It's a screw job. Because you can't get glucose into the cell rapidly enough, you keep, but the endoplasmic reticulum doesn't understand that because our ancestors never ate these massively high fat diets and they didn't have all these modern chemical circa inhibitors and everything else. So they don't understand what's going on. They just say, hey, we need to produce the energy. Keep putting calcium, keep putting calcium, keep putting calcium into the mitochondria. But the glucose isn't showing up because you got insulin resistance on your glucose 4 plasma membrane transporters. Like I remember I showed you that slide of how you got glute 4s on the neurons and like in your hippocampus. So the mitochondria is screwed. The calcium keeps pouring in, pouring in, pouring in, and it'll start to precipitate proteins. Mitochondria dies. You're screwed. Mitochondria is dead. You lose enough mitochondria, the cell dies. So that's why also diabetics can't handle these rapid cognitive problems. They can't ramp up that fast. So this is just another contributor to cognitive impairment in diabetics. And it's also why get your act together the sooner the better before you lose so many neurons that it becomes an irreversible problem. Okay, we talked about excitotoxicity already at length. Um, this just shows one other detail of it is there is such a thing. Everybody knows that nitric oxide is a wonderful thing in your endothelium. And that's made by something called ENOS, endothelial nitric oxide in your endothelial cells along lining your arteries. But there's also a type of nitric oxide in your neurons. And this one is ENOS. And this means neuronal nitric oxide synthase, okay? And if you get overactivation of this, you can make too much nitric oxide inside of your brain cells. Again, it's a totally different thing than your endothelial arterial cells. So I'm almost hesitant to bring this up, but this can potentially, you know, combine with superoxide anions due to mitochondrial failure and produce peroxy nitrite and lead to oxidative stress damaging um, your mitochondria. So this is a different thing than what happens in your endothelium. All that stuff, I 100% agree with Esselstyn and I follow what he says. I think he's great and he's right. This is a different thing. So I don't want to confuse you about that, but neuronal nitric oxide synthase can be overactivated in a different context, okay? So uh, we're not gonna get, talk, get into that anymore. High fat meal damages your arterial lining. The high fat causes activation of your neutrophils. They're also called polymorphonuclear leukocytes because they got a funny nucleus with different shapes to it. They release something called myeloperoxidase. It's an enzyme that's very cationic, meaning it has a lot of positive charge. Remember how we talked about your, your endothelial, EC is endothelial cell lining cells, your arteries having a glycocalyx and the glycocalyx has a zeta potential, a negative charge. So if you throw in all this MPO positive charges, they stick to it and they actually cause your glycocalyx to collapse down. Once your glycocalyx collapses down on your arterial cells, you now have these exposed, these binding proteins to bind your white blood cells, for example. So the neutrophil will bind to the wall and they'll sometimes then enter and go subendothelial, pass in between the cells. It's all a big inflammatory disaster. So what I'm trying to say is high fat meals are really bad for your arterial lining. There are no good, well, I don't want to get into all that. That's going to get into big debate. I don't want to get into all that, but I'm just saying is skip the cheeseburger, okay? It's not doing you any good. It is doing you harm. You got these negative charge in here from your zeta potential. And um, this all repels red blood cells from sticking to the wall. You don't want clots forming for no reason. MPO is myeloperoxidase released by the neutrophils when they're activated by the high fat meal, okay? And here's some other things that are happening. 
The high fat meals have a tendency to cause some of the red blood cells to change their shape. They can be microcytic and small. They can form little spurs. Acantho means spur, site means cell. So they'll just have a spur on part of their outer um, contour. Echinocyte means like an echinid, kind of like a porcupine. So circumferentially, or hedgehog, they'll circumferentially have these spurs. You know, when you deform the shape of the red blood cell, it's less able to deliver oxygen to the tissue. So it's bad, more prone to clotting. That's all bad. So the point I'm making here is high fat meals on a routine basis are bad for health. Um, they also cause something called phosphatidylserine externalization. You'll initially start out with a young red blood cell when it first comes out of the bone marrow, having a predominance of phospholipid. That's a phospholipid, part of the phospholipid bilayer, and they'll be located primarily in the inner leaflet. The older that red blood cell gets, the more these phospholipid will flip to the outer leaflet. That means facing outside towards the blood rather than inside towards the cytoplasm of the red blood cell. When you eat high-fat meals, this process happens more rapidly. It's called accelerating the rate of phospholipid PS, phospholipid externalization. And that's not good. It makes the red blood cell stiffer, less able to travel through capillaries, causing hypertension, decreasing oxygen delivery to the tissues. It's bad, okay? It makes the blood slightly more prothrombotic. You don't want that. So the point that I was trying to make is, yes, aluminum is a major, major uh, brain toxin, but there's a whole bunch of other ones. Um, okay, severe hypertension. We talked about that, damaging all the arteries, which is going to drop their oxygen ability to deliver. Diabetes, overtreated hypertension with hypotension. You can also, with chronic damage to your arterial system, you can end up with things like orthostatic hypertension, but that's a kind of another subject. So I don't want to get into that, but, and that gets into some of the, the oh no pathway. I don't want to get into that right now, but just be aware of it, that if you care about that. Okay, hypoxia. Sleep apnea, for example, blood brain barrier damage from these high fat diets in particular, but also this leaky gut stuff. If we got time, I'm going to go through that. We talked about what causes hypertension, high fat, high sodium diets, excessive stress, et cetera, corticosteroids, um, lack of the plant foods, potassium and magnesium, diabetes. Okay, we talked about that. Very similar. Leaky gut, that's a problem. Uh, we're going to get into that in a moment. Excitotoxins, we talked about them, mitochondrial toxins, circuit inhibitors. And I made the point, they're all kind of the same thing. They're all pushing towards elevated cytoplasm calcium. So they start out a little different, but they end up in the same place. Damage to your neurons, potentially eventually apoptosis, neuronal death. Okay, other brain toxins. We talked about that, alcohol, MJ, opioids, all this stuff, tobacco, stupid. Waste disposal problems. Get your sleep so your brain can clean yourself. Your brain needs that sleep. All right. Well, that's why you're smartest when you first wake up in the morning, because your brain has cleaned itself. Um, also, because when does an animal need to be smart? When it's hungry, right? When you first wake up, break fast. You fasted overnight since your last day yesterday. In addition, you get ghrelin, G for gastric for stomach. G for ghrelin goes up the hippocampus, increases your alertness. Okay. All this stuff about breakfast is the most important meal. That's not true. That was published by these like breakfast food selling companies. Okay. I like to sit down. As soon as I wake up in the morning, I'll sit down. I either have to go to work or I'll sit down and I'll study the most difficult thing there possibly is because I know I'm smartest. I try to delay lunch until as late as possible, maybe two in the afternoon or something, because I know once I eat lunch, my IQ drops about 30 points. I can no longer do the real complex cognitive stuff that I'm interested in. Okay. Stay away from TBI. We talked about this stuff as well. Okay. So here's this too. This is, they're from, he's from England, Douglas Kell. She's from South Africa, Etheresia. Pretorius, and they did brilliant work with regard to red blood cell shape, morphology, and the effects of leaky gut, dormant bacteria. And um, I'll show you how that all works. 
Men start accumulating iron in their body in Western countries after 20s because they eat too much meat and processed food that's fortified with iron. Women tend to not start becoming iron overloaded until they hit menopause. They're no longer menstruating. And that's going to lead to increased oxidative stress in their body, especially if they're releasing free iron into their blood, let's say, because they have also fatty liver or some other toxin to the liver, like alcohol, for example. We absorb iron through our gut, the duodenum. Here's ferroportin, the iron door. It then gets carried around and transferred. We keep iron tightly sequestered because you don't want iron getting free. It'll cause problems. Iron is useful because it has a it's a transitional metal with a variable valence, you know, typically Fe2 plus, Fe3 plus, and that's used to hand off electrons in the middle of the active sites of um, enzymes. It's also part of the electron transport chain in the mitochondria. So iron does have a valuable purpose. It's also, of course, super valuable in the red blood cells as binding to oxygen on hemoglobin. So it can do wonderful things, but when it gets free, non-transferrin bound iron, it's dangerous. We store it inside cells bound to ferritin. Ferritin typically belongs intracellular. A small amount gets in the blood, but that should be relatively minimal. Okay, now imagine you're walking through the desert 100 miles. You can't do it with no supplies because it's too hot and there's no water, you would die, all right? <clears throat> the same thing happens to bacteria if they try to eat the egg yolk. A bacteria can get through the eggshell, it's permeable but it can't get through the egg white because there's no iron. And uh, you just have protein in the egg white. And by not having iron, the bacteria can't make it to the yolk where the embryo is. And so what I'm trying to say is humans do the same thing. We sequester iron so that bacteria that are in our blood can't come back to life and cause problems for us. Iron is real dangerous. As it cycles back and forth between Fe2 plus and Fe3 plus, it's called ferrous redox cycling. It starts handing off electrons to oxygen containing molecules. And it can undergo something called the Fenton reaction. It's easy to remember, Fe for Fenton, Fe for iron. Ferrous is Latin word for iron or for rust. Okay, so anyways, you can produce hydroxyl radicals, which are really dangerous. They react with whatever's near them. It's like bouncing a Super Bowl inside a, a shop with glassworks, porcelain or something. It just starts randomly breaking stuff. Okay, so you don't want to be iron overloaded and you don't want liver toxins. And the point I'm making is iron, this guy, Ed Weinberg, he's a uh, iron uh, scientist. He says, basically, it's like a fire. It's good to have it where you need it, like in a stove and a furnace, but you don't want it anywhere else or it causes problems, all right? Painting of a burning city. Okay, now here's what's happening at the gut level. Normally, in your gut, you've got tight junctions on the lining cells called the enterocytes, and they are supplied. They're mainly maintained by eating fiber because the fiber is converted to short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, four-carbon, you know, off-butane, the alkane, four-carbon, butyric acid, same thing essentially. And about two thirds of the energy of the enterocytes to line your gut, get their energy from these from the fiber. So that maintains your tight junctions, prevents leaky gut. There's also some toxins that can cause it. Bad bacteria like from eating meat, meat changes the gut flora. There's only two types of gut flora you need to know. There's the plant-based diet with all the fiber, that's the good gut flora. Then there's the bad gut flora that comes from eating meat, processed food, cooking oils. It's also made worse by the chlorine in the water because that'll kill some of the good bacteria, taking a lot of antibiotics. And there's a whole bunch of things. I'll give in another lecture's list of all the things that cause leaky gut. You want to avoid all of them, okay? Especially if you've got a problem with autoimmune disease. When you got leaky gut, the bacteria, the gram-negative bacteria make a, a toxin called lipopolysaccharide. The gram-positive bacteria make a toxin called lipotychoic acid. Those can get across the leaky gut and get into the blood and they can cause a predisposition of the blood to clotting not good. And if there's an, a large amount of free iron in the blood, that can cause not only the formation of clots, but a bad type of clot, something called an amyloid clot. Fibrinogen right here, the precursor protein of blood clotting, 
it has hydrogen bonds between itself. So these are intra, I-N-T-R-A for intra. And that holds it into its normal shape. It's, it's shaped like a slinky. That's called an alpha helix, alpha helix. And that's the configuration you want, kind of like a slinky or a cylinder. All right, on the other hand, when you have it distorted, it'll change two primary structures of secondary structures of protein are alpha helix and beta pleated sheet. It'll then become, instead of being cylindrical, it'll flatten out and then it can stack like pieces of paper. This is called the beta pleated sheet configuration or shape of a protein. And now the hydrogen bonds are between separate molecules of fibrin. Okay, that's bad because you can get these big bulky precipitates and the so-called amyloidogenic form of clotting, it's harder to dissolve, harder to lyse. It's more likely to keep a vessel occluded, okay? And that's gonna be relevant because that's what we're talking about with amyloid transformation of the brain proteins as well. Okay, so these are from papers by Douglas Calatheresia Pretorius, amyloidogenic blood clotting um, due to amplification by high levels of bacterial lipopolysaccharide. So you can get bacteria in your blood. We all have them. A lot of people aren't aware of it, but if you think about it, it's kind of obvious. Everybody knows tuberculosis can be reactivated. Everybody knows syphilis can be reactivated. Everybody knows Lyme disease can be reactivated. There's other bacteria in your blood that are like inactive, like in a spore form, because they can't get any iron. They can't be active. But if you've got leaky gut, you're gonna have more bacteria getting in the blood. And then if you've got high levels of iron, more, that free iron enables them to come back to life, so to speak. And they'll often release their lipopolysaccharide or LTA endotoxins. And these will predispose towards more blood clotting. Okay, and then I showed you that other slide earlier in the talk about when you've got blood-brain barrier defects, which often go hand in hand with um, leaky gut. Like you get head trauma, traumatic brain injury, you'll simultaneously get leaky gut and increased blood-brain barrier, leaky leaky brain. Uh, you get a stroke, you'll simultaneously get leaky brain, increased blood-brain barrier permeability, and leaky gut. Okay, so it's especially dangerous in that time to be eating a poor diet. I actually think they should change the neurology guidelines for post-stroke and post-traumatic brain injury management based on that. Okay, I've, I spoke to some neurologists about it, and these are top-notch neurologists, and they didn't know this stuff, and I think that should be written into the guidelines. Nobody listens to me, though, but I know I'm right. Smart people at least have a chance. Okay, so these will also cause distortion of the red blood cell shapes, making them predisposed to clotting. These are showing with electron micrographs, some of these bacteria in the blood. Um, the worst, the higher the hemoglobin A1C, the more tissue hypoxia you're going to have. Um, I was going to show you some stuff, oh, about how oxygen release from the red blood cell causes a shape change. And that's going to cause some ATP to move from the red blood cell to the vessel wall. And that's part of your vasodilation mechanism. There's actually a whole bunch of things that happen. So let's say you got this red blood cell traveling through a capillary. It gives off some oxygen. Simultaneously, you've given off the oxygen. It'll let go of a little bit of ATP that diffuses over to the endothelial wall. And that will then be part of the message to say, hey, we need more oxygen delivery to this area and send this retrograde wave of vasodilation, okay? There's another reason why it happens, which I showed earlier um, due to the potassium coming out of the active neuron, um, that also causing increased vasodilation of these endothelial cells or their smooth muscle cells, pericytes, traveling retrograde, sort of sending the signal, hey, we need more oxygen over here. And that's all part of neurovascular coupling. And you start messing up these endothelial cells and the smooth muscle cells due to your diabetes, your hypertension, and these other problems. And then you're going to mess up this neurovascular coupling. You don't want that to happen. High-fat diet increases blood-brain barrier permeability, disrupts neuronal gradients, and it allows toxins in the brain, frankly. That's going to cause brain fog. It's going to cause some partial disruption of the 
normal ionic milieu, you know, your sodium potassium concentrations is going to be more difficult to keep those optimized. Okay, they're showing with mice, you feed them high fat diets, they get impaired memory, they get impaired mood, depressive like behavior. Uh, mouse fed high fat diets is 60% fat, which is quite high, but some people will eat meals close to that. Um, it'll cause decreased memory function in just one day. You're going to be getting decreased oxygen to the brain. You're going to have all these other problems we talked about. Um, you can see here, magnesium is right in the center of chlorophyll. So you eat the plants, you get the magnesium and you get the fiber. You know, the fiber cells, plant cells are wrapped in fiber. You eat meat, what's in the center of them? Iron, you become iron overloaded. Okay, we talked about iron being dangerous because it's going to do uh, ferrous redox cycling, contribute to uh, the Fenton reaction and produce production of hydroxyl radicals. Um, so all these things go in a bad direction. Okay, what are they showing? The older people get, they'll have a tendency to accumulate more serum ferritin, meaning have more free iron. And that tends to go hand in hand to having more oxidative stress biomarkers in their urine, um, which is a bad sign, meaning more tissue is being damaged. And he wrote an article, a brilliant paper called Iron Behaving Badly. You see that with clever scientists. They'll often make jokes and they'll put everything into a narrative story context versus the typical bogus, lousy, crappy scientific articles you read. They try to impress you with all these statistics, but in the end result, they're usually funded by some corporation and the, the studies are meaningless. Okay. This guy's really smart, Douglas Cowell. Okay. I'm not saying he knows nutrition, but he knows a heck of a lot about blood. Okay. Relatively normal RBCs. Usually they're about the size of a lymphocyte's nucleus, okay? That's how you can judge their size, okay? Here's a neutrophil. Notice that these are even bigger, these WBCs. So it's even harder for them to get through a capillary, okay? Um, okay, we talked about this, them distorting the shape of the WBC, of the RBCs. Amyloidosis of a protein, we just talked about that, changing from alpha helix into bladed pleated sheets and those stacking up together by forming hydrogen bonds between the individual molecules, um, and they, they make these dense clots. These are called dense matted deposits. A normal blood clot, the fibrin should look like pieces of spaghetti, relatively neat, and that's easy to dissolve when necessary by the body. But these dense matted deposit amyloidogenic type clots um, due to the lipopolysaccharide endotoxins released by the dormant bacteria that were reactivated, these are much harder to lyse. Some of these will get across a leaky blood-brain barrier, and they're going to cause precipitation of the amyloid in the brain. Okay, and so here is showing that with LPS, uh, with LTA or excessive free iron, you are precipitating the amyloid, meaning that the beta amyloid protein in the brain coming from the amyloid precursor protein um, cleaved by the beta enzyme, it's going to be predisposed to precipitate, if you will. Initially go from individual molecules to forming these oligomers, then forming bigger aggregated precipitates and the amyloidogenic nature of it being that they're stacking up like pieces of paper rather than remaining separate from each other in an alpha helix cylindrical configuration then the beta amyloid, some people say in the oligomer phase, it can have mechanical effects. It can push on things. It can push on the NMDA receptor. I think I got a picture of that. Um, by the way, these all can then contribute to brain damage. Okay. So I'm also saying this idea of amyloid, it can be relevant, but there's a lot of problems with it. We don't have time to go all into all of them, how it poorly it correlate, correlates with early neuronal damage. But this is right here is the Douglas Cal Ethereza Pretorius theory of how this amyloidogenic clotting causes precipitation of beta amyloid, and it all leads to tissue hypoxity and the death of brain cells, okay? I wanted to have my other slide in there. I didn't have it. How am I doing for time? Do I got a little bit of time left or am I? Okay, well, I'll just keep going until something Sorry, goes. Sorry, of course, I had a cough the second you asked that. We're getting towards the top of the hour, so if you could wind it up in the next few minutes so that we'll have time for questions, that would be great. Got it, got it. I think I only got about five more slides. 
I don't even, I get a little lost sometimes. Okay, here's the alcohol. That doesn't mean I'm demented. It just means, you know, I got hundreds of slides and I can't see them because I'm not on my regular computer. Okay, alcohol is processed. Let's say in the liver here by alcohol dehydrogenase. And then you get um, acid aldehyde dehydrogenase here. And especially in, in persons of Asian descent, they'll sometimes have a deficiency of this enzyme here. And this guy, Dr. Yamashima, he's this Japanese neuroscientist, really bright guy. He was given the task of why are so many Japanese persons becoming demented in comparison with the past? And he came to the conclusion it's from the cooking oils. And he came to the conclusion that they need this enzyme to process these toxic aldehydes that come from alcohol and come from omega-6 cooking oils. And if they're deficient in these, they're more at risk to become demented. But he found that even if they aren't low in that enzyme, acetaldehyde dehydrogenase, they're still at increased risk to have damage to their pancreases, for example, and their hunger center, the arcuate nucleus and their uh, hypothalamus. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's kind of a long run here. Uh, I think it'll be easier to see on my other slides, but this, this comes from the Yamashima paper. So here's the Yamashima paper if you want to take a look at it. Um, you get increased calcium, then you end up with activation of calpane. Um, we're going to have to talk about heat shock proteins. It'll make more sense when I show you a picture of it. Um, you can also get, when you drink large amounts of alcohol, that's why binge drinking is, is especially bad. You overwhelm the regular detoxification system in the liver, and you have to run down this other detoxification pathway that produces a lot of reactive oxygens and oxidative stress and also produces this HNE, hydroxynonanol. That's a real uh, toxic aldehyde. Okay, here's HNE, just so you've seen it, hydroxynonanol. 4-hydroxy, meaning that it's on the 4-carbon, the hydroxyl group. Non means 9, 9 carbons. Ene means that there's a double bond in there, and it's an aldehyde. Okay, so 4-hydroxy, non and all. The AL means aldehyde. So that's just a carbonyl group with a hydrogen attached to the carbon as well. Okay, so HNE itself is toxic to the mitochondria, to the ATP synthase. Um, when you have, I'm going to show you just one thing. We don't need to talk too much about fatty acids, but when you've got two double bonds and a fatty acid, the carbon in between is called the methylene bridge. This hydrogen is not tightly held. It's predisposed to being plucked off and you form lipid peroxyl uh, products in it. You inhibit a whole bunch of other things by drinking alcohol too. They're all bad. That's why I put bad company. Alcohol does all bad things. It's a toxic thing. Okay, here's a peroxide, two adjacent oxygens. And you form a lot of these when you eat these cooking oils. The omega-6 is there. Um, so one of the things that happens is that you got this protein here called the heat shock protein, HSPs. They function as a chaperone to transport old uh, proteins to the lysosome for recycling. They also bind to the lysosomal membrane and they help keep it stabilized so it doesn't break apart and leak out these enzymes. Like this is a very powerful enzyme, cathepsase, okay? But here's why it becomes a problem. HNE, the toxic aldehyde I just talked about, hydroxynonanol, it will bind to HSP, the heat shock protein. And once it binds to it, all of a sudden HSP now becomes very attractive to that enzyme, calpane. Simultaneously, these patients often will have high intracytoplasmic calcium, which activates calpane. So now you, this is trouble. Activated calpane in the setting of HSP bound to HNE, it'll just attack the HSP and cut it in half. And when it cuts it in half, then the HSP can no longer do its job. It can't, it can't chaperone these proteins to the lysosome and it can't stabilize the lysosome. The lysosome breaks apart, cathepsin breaks out, and it will then just digest the cell and the cell will die. Okay, so this is called the, you know, the Tetsumori Yamashima calpane cathepsin theory of neuronal degeneration, all right? And so you can kind of see, you know, obviously it's a sad, terrible thing. So what's the smart move? Avoid omega-6 cooking oils, okay? It's pretty obvious.
Okay, here he's just showing a slide where here's an intact lysosome with relatively narrow zone of transition between the lysosome and the adjacent tissue. And here's a wide zone of transition, meaning that there's sort of a blur, a blob, if you will, because the lysosome is broken apart, the thepsin is getting out and it's destroying things around it. So you get a really poorly defined uh, margin, poorly marginated lysosome, okay? Okay, and then this is just the summary diagram from uh, Yamashima's paper. Here he's showing dead neurons. These are located in the arcuate nucleus, the hypothalamus, the hunger center. So this is gradually happening over the course of decades. But you know, the more neurons a person loses in there, the less likely they're ever going to get their appetite under control. This is showing neurons des destroyed in the hippocampus, the memory center, contributing to dementia from the omega-6 cooking oils. I've also had a paper where they showed it destroying pancreatic beta cells, contributing to diabetes. And all these things are happening gradually, but they're bad. You don't want them. Oh, this is a slide I referred to earlier with regard to forming uh, clusters of beta amyloid proteins joining together like an oligomers is, you know, just a couple of them when you get a whole bigger bunch of them polymers and aggregates. But the point is they can distort the plasma membrane of a neuron and that can push on these NMDA receptors for glutamate. And that will then allow more calcium into the cell. You get increased cytoplasmic calcium. Not good. Okay. This is just another paper showing these endocrine disruptors. They really increase your risk of diabetes. They make people fat that contribute to diabetes, but even more, oh, and I, oh, I, I kind of, let me go back to that slide. It showed that they, they tend to have a negative effect on the pancreas. They're contributing to diabetes. So what I'm saying is, if you got a diabetic who says, I went to a low-fat diet, but I can't cure my diabetes, what's wrong? I would say, well, make sure you're avoiding these endocrine chemicals. Make sure you're avoiding aluminum, okay? Make sure you're avoiding omega-6 cooking oils. Um, here's just a paper showing, you know, perfluorooctanoic acid. That's like you have on nonstick cookware. Um, that also is toxic to pancreatic cells. So avoid all this stuff. I cook air. I just boil everything in water, all my starches, rice, beans, potatoes, sweet potatoes, quinoa, oatmeal, simple. Okay. And here's what I thought was a really interesting point. This is not widely known. These endocrine disrupting chemicals, everybody knows they increase your risk of breast cancer. Well, guess what? They also increase your risk of dementia. So it's worth knowing about them. It's easy to learn about them. It's easy to avoid them. So why not do it? Besides some of them being thyroid disruptors, uh, most of them are neuron disruptors. They've actually recommended in this paper. This guy, by the way, is like a world famous great researcher, Saralini. Um, he says you shouldn't even call them endocrine disrupting chemicals. You should call them ENDs, endocrine and neuron disrupting chemicals, because they have a very potent common uh, anti-neuron effect. Not good for the brain. I think this is partly why I got so many demented people. Okay, I don't think we got time for this, but I just said, you know, a typical pizza and soda pop meal, it makes you stupid in like 15 different ways. So I never... I don't eat any of this processed food anymore. I just think it just makes people fat and stupid. And I have people saying, you're not normal. Why don't you want to participate in the party? And I'm like, you're not enjoying life. Don't you want to eat this junk food? I'm like, yeah, being fat and stupid. I don't think that's going to make me have a happier life. Um, and again, here's the last slide. Just, you know, you want to be healthy. Try to keep your life simple. Focus on the few things you care about. Put your time and energy into that and do the best you can with that. And I said, you know, we can learn some of this back from Genesis. You know, God said, eat a vegan diet. Genesis 129. And but keep your indoor heating and plumbing. And uh, this is a painting by Bruegel and Rubin. I think it's great. So that's basically it. That's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Rogers. If you wouldn't mind answering a few questions that a couple came in in advance and a couple are in the chat. If you'd like, you can stop your screen share now or I can stop it for you. Yeah, I can turn off my slides. Let there me we go. That. I can I can stop it. There you go. Thank All you right. so much. Okay, so um, a few questions were submitted in advance, which we greatly appreciate. The first one is from Matthew, and he says, from the data I've seen, the richest sources of AGEs in a whole food plant-based diet can be the higher fat and protein foods like tofu, depending on how they're cooked. 
I do a water saute of TVP fairly often. Given that TVP has most of the fat content removed from the soy, I assume that whatever the cooking method, the AGE content will be much lower. However, I'm wondering if the production process of TVP might increase its AGE content prior to even hitting the pan. Well, cooking stuff can increase the amount of AGEs. I, I actually recommend, me personally, I recommend avoiding soil. I know that's a bit of a controversial subject, but my experience of going back through a bunch of old papers on it, I thought soy is much less healthy than people think it is. So I just avoid it completely. Um, but the more you cook something and heat it up, the more likely you're going to produce some AGEs. But I, I couldn't answer more specific than that. So, but TVP, textured vegetable protein, I'm not real familiar with that. Um, and isn't it a high, is it a processed food? Yeah, that also that also sounds to me like it might have MSG in it because a lot of these textures, soy proteins, a lot there's like more than fifty different euphemisms, you know, names for MSG. Um, so I would watch out for that stuff. I avoid all that process. The more you process anything, typically the less healthy it tends to become. Um, so I don't know that that particular textured vegetable protein in detail, but I just say by association, most of these so-called protein isolates, soy protein isolates, are very high in MSG and they're not good for you. I would avoid them. Great. Thank you. This is from Steve. I started this diet a week ago, and I'd like to know if this diet has any side effects in the beginning. I'm beginning to notice some tiredness and weakness. If so, how long does it last? I don't want to be discouraged to stop the diet. Well, it's a hard question to know. I'm not sure exactly what he means by that. And you know, if you mean a low-fat vegan diet, I think that's the best way to go. But you can have transition difficulties, you know, when you transition from a, a, let's say a meat, high fat diet and processed food diet, you know, your gut bacteria, you get a transition from the different to the better type of gut flora, but you can have cramping, bloating and all those sorts of things for a while. If you quit caffeine, you can get withdrawal symptoms from that and feel kind of tired and sad for a while to you sort of readjust your baseline. So it's hard for me to know exactly from that. And I don't know exactly what you're eating. There could be toxins or contaminants in it, but I can tell you in the long run, just look around epidemiologically, you know, People that eat plant-based diets, they tend to be skinny and healthy. Their populations in general, in comparison with the meat right. and the processed food eaters. Uh, this is a question about leafy greens because Dr. Esselstyn talks about um, that they have to be steamed or boiled. And this person wanted to know, but can they be reheated in the microwave? Can they be eaten raw? Or is there something special that happens if you steam or boil your greens? You know, I don't really know the answer to that in the sense that I don't ever do that. I'm totally simple. I just eat the salad. I eat it plain. Um, Esselstyn liked steaming greens, so that's probably okay. I don't like microwaves. Microwaves give off the highest EMF. I used to measure the EMFs on everything in my house. I had all these equipment for doing that because, you know, when I first had the house and the kids, um, and that microwave would give off a lot of EMF, even when it's not on. When it's on, I would definitely leave the room. I actually got it out of the house, and then my family brought one back a little bit. Then one of them studied it, and they're like, oh, gosh, this is bad. They got rid of it, so we don't even have a microwave in our house. But what I'm basically saying is I don't know specifically its effect on their microwave would be more likely, I think, to potentially distort things. But I don't know. Um, I don't sort of bother with it too much. I try to do everything fast. Uh, so I don't know. Great. Um, this is a question from Neil. Is sauna therapy good for cardiovascular health? That's a tough question. And the reason I call that a tough question, there was a great wrestler by the name of Dan Gable. He was a coach of the University of Iowa like through the 1980s, for example, he won more national championships than any other coach. And he would tell you he loved going in the sauna after a workout. He thought the sauna had benefits. Uh, so he thinks it's good. There's another guy by the name of Martin Paul. He's sort of a famous biochemist and he's a 
big believer that being warm, like in a sauna can increase something called BH4, like tetrahydrobioptin. And he thinks that that helps prevent some of the oxidative stress associated with the, the NOAA ONO pathway, nitric oxide or oxynitrate pathway. So he thinks it's beneficial. Okay, maybe, maybe not. I don't know about that. I'll tell you why I'm hesitant to do that. You heat up your whole body in a sauna, including you heat up your 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 cojones. Okay, that's associated with lowering your testosterone production. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Okay, and then I'll tell you another little trick that I do. You know, I'm skinnier than the meat eating, processed food eating people in my family, so I always wear a couple jackets. I wear them on my body here, and I don't wear you know much. You know, I just wear regular one pair of sweatpants below. What I'm trying to say is, all I know is I, I've written you know tons of books, made tons of videos. I got a lot of academic experience. And I can tell you, I know that if I wake up in the morning and I got a sweatshirt, an extra t-shirt, and I'm like really warm in my upper body, I can think faster. And I don't know if that's really having an effect or if it's just a placebo effect, but you get better blood flow. You have lower viscosity blood when you're warm. I don't want to warm up myself below the belt, if you will, because I'm worried about lowering testosterone production. But I know because I spend a lot of time trying to really, really, really fine tune academic optimization. And that seems to help me. So what I'm basically saying is I've heard a lot of good things. And I know there's lots of videos on the Internet praising it. There's lots of people in countries where they do it a lot and they claim it's good. But I don't know for sure. But I, I can tell you those are the arguments of why it is good or bad. But I'm scared of anything that will potentially affect the, the cojones, so I avoid it. Is there a difference between like a dry sauna or an infrared sauna, or is that, do you consider them all just too hot? There might be, I don't know, but I, I just avoid them. I sort of said, you know, if you, if you burn your balls, you might not get them back. So I don't want to take that chance. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's funny. Yeah. Right. Well, one other thing on that question, just because I see it a lot, a lot of young guys, they're putting their cell phone in their front pocket, which is like really stupid, you know, because I see young guys lifting weights and, um, I go, hey, genius, why you got your uh, cell phone in your front pocket? You know, because these are all big muscular guys. Young guys are real kind of cocky and arrogant. They think they're so strong and they are pretty strong, you know, when their testosterone is highest. Okay. And what I'm trying to say, though, is that's counterproductive. Keeping your cell phone in your front pocket, low power microwave and, you know, on your cojones there. And I think it might increase your risk of testicular cancer, certainly of testicular atrophy. Women having it in the front pocket might increase your risk of breast cancer in the back pocket, maybe rectal cancer. So I would avoid that. Thanks. This is from Anonymous. I've heard there is a link between the use of Benadryl, diphenhedramine, and dementia. Can you please discuss whether or not this is true? And if so, how much Benadryl is safe to take? What do you do if you've been taking Benadryl daily for years? Well, I forget exactly, but I think it's maybe an anticholinergic effect or something, but I do definitely know it can impair cognitive function. And I would see about if you could gradually come off it. If you have to take it, maybe you got some allergic disease, I'd work with your doctor and see if you could minimize your doses and avoid anything else that's contributing to allergies, like high um, sodium, for example, makes your immune system more active, as do a few other things. Those vol I showed a slide in my talk today on volatile organic uh, compounds causing sort of a hyperactivity in the neuron system. So I try to avoid all those things. Um, but like I said, I try to avoid all medicines because not only you got the pill, you got the coating that the pill is put in, um, the preservatives in the pill, the food dyes in the pill. Um, so if you have to take it, work with your doctor. But I try to avoid taking all pills. A lot of people are real dependent on pills. I sort of think, you know, ask yourself, how can I fix this problem first? And only as a last resort, take the pill. That's sort of my philosophy. But yes, I have heard Benadryls can cause cognitive impairment. They can disrupt your sleep. I would avoid them if it was possible to do so. Thanks. And speaking of sleep, one of the live viewers were saying when you talked about sleep is when you clean your brain, what if you have trouble sleeping? What do you do? 
Um, there's a lot of things you could do. You know, if you read most articles, they'll say it's good to be cool when you sleep, but there's two ways of looking at it. If you're warm when you sleep, maybe you're going to sweat a little bit and you're going to be less likely to have to get up the void. You know, when, you, when you're cold, you kind of vasoconstrict a little bit and you send a little more blood through the kidneys and you have to wake up the void more often, okay? You can maybe eat your lunch as your big meal of your day if you're able to do that. Because um, the later you eat, the more fluid you got on board being absorbed from your gut into your blood, meaning you're going to have to wake up the void. You know, men tend to have an enlarged prostate as they get older, pushing on the bladder. So they have to wake up the void more often and that interrupts their sleep. You know, having the room a little bit darker, you know, um, you can use that excuse to you know, talk your significant other into, you know, making the two back beast. Sometimes that'll help you to sleep. Um, what else could you do? There well, is a, I mean, I EMF canopies. Being, being more active in the daytime, she said she has a sedentary desk job. And I think if, when people don't exercise in the daytime, I don't think they sleep as well at night. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So getting exercise daytime, there's a lot of things you do. You can just stand up. You can do isometric exercise. One of the things that I'll do, because I have to spend a lot of time at a desk reading films off a computer sometimes, is I'll stand up whenever I get a phone call, okay? I'll take little breaks whenever I can. You know, whenever I go to the bathroom, I'll go to the far bathroom. So yeah, try to get your exercise. Also, there's a question of your melatonin gradually ramps up. It's not a sudden thing. So in the night, try to decrease your screen time. Put low watt light bulbs in your bathroom, in your bedroom, wherever you absolutely have to have a light. Um, so you're, the, the less bright lights you're around in late in the evening, the last, you know, three, four hours before going to bed, the better to allow your melatonin to increase, try to avoid psychologically stressful things late in the evening. Um, uh, cause you got a, like a seesaw effect between cortisol, which is the awakeness alert stress hormone and melatonin, the sleep relaxation hormone. So do what you can to have your melatonin ramped up. Great. Thanks. This is from Jean. It's a very specific question. So I'm not sure if you know. If, if, do you know any foods that can help reduce the possible negative effects of residual exposure to Vicans sulfuryl fluoride after a residence was treated for termites? Oh, well, you can maybe rinse it out of the house to decrease exposure if you think it's outgassing. Um, you know, keep the place. The other, she's, she's asking, do you know any like sp specific foods that could help with that? Well, sort of like, you know, McDougal one time said, if somebody told me that earwax, I tell them to eat a low-fat vegan diet. The point being is, yeah. <laughs> it, it's also like the old joke from the movie Colors with the two um, the two cops, Sean Penn and Robert Duvall, and they made a joke about the bulls. The two male bulls are standing on the hill, and the young bull says to the old bull, hey, 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 why don't we run down there and, and you know fool around with one of those cows? And the old bull says, why don't we walk down there and fool around with all of them? And the joke, what I'm trying to say is, one of the best approaches to health problems is say, how can I optimize my overall health? If you're eating the best possible diet for a human, your immune system is going to function as well as possible. And you're avoiding all these toxins like I listed here. Everything is going to work as well as it's going to work. And you'll probably get the best results. Um, you know, and you know, you eat the, the low fat vegan diet with all these plant foods, you get a lot of nitric oxide, you get a lot of vasodilation, you're avoiding the sodium, you get good vasodilation. Everything in your body heals better with good blood flow kind of a famous example of that was Ruth Heydrich, who had a pretty severe fracture and she got hit by a car training for a triathlon. And they all told her she'd never walk again, but you know, she healed real fast. She's eating two really big salads every day. I think eating a lot of greens, you get better blood flow, you get better tissue healing. Um, and then you avoid the things that impair immune system. You avoid the smelly things. Like I talked about those volatile organic compounds causing a nonspecific inflammation. I went into all that with oxidative stress. You avoid the excess iron leading to oxidative stress. So if you avoid all the bad stuff, you give your body more of a chance to heal. And the way I look at it is, let's say you want to go up two steps a day. 
what often happens in regular life, you have some other bad habits, so you get knocked down one step. So you only go, you only get one step of progress. But if you can avoid those bad habits, you can get two steps of progress a day. What happens to a lot of people is they do a few good things and say, well, I'm trying, but they're doing all these bad things. So they end up with really no net result. And so do the good stuff, avoid the bad stuff. And, you know, I, I listed, you know, tons of things to avoid here in this lecture today, that sort of thing. Yeah, you, you talked about the detrimental effects of a high fat meal. Um, like, is that just in general or like will one high fat meal be deleterious? Because I don't know if you know, like when somebody's having a PET scan, they tell you to eat absolutely no carbs the day before and just eat fat and protein. So why do they do that? Do you know? Well, PET scans typically like uh, fluorodeoxyglucose and they want your cells to be sort of hungry for glucose. So you'll get more glucose uptake in the cell and they'll get a, a better scan to read it, you know? Um, so I think that's what they're trying to do. We have a little bit of a mild glucose deprivation effect, but they, they want to get an accurate scan. For example, like if a person talks during a PET scan, they'll get increased uptake in all the muscles of phonation for speaking. And that can confuse the interpretation of it, stuff like that. So they're just trying to starve the cells of glucose a little bit, if you will. Yep. So one high fat meal in a lifetime probably isn't a problem. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Cause yeah, everybody's going to have a, a high fat meal. And I think our ancestors probably, you know, mostly ate plant foods, but once in a while they would catch an animal and they would eat it. And it's not that big a deal, but it's when you, you have that same high fat meal over and over again, twice a day, day after day for decades, you get all these effects where the body's reparative processes are overwhelmed. Great. Thank you. Uh, Tiffany, who's watching live, said that she saw in your presentations that statins contribute to dementia risk. Her cardiologist supports a whole food diet, but wants her on statins. She has FH. If she remains WF whole foods, will she be okay even if she's taking statins? Yeah, I mean, everything's a trade-off. You know, they'll say, well, the statin is helping to save your life by lowering your cholesterol. And you have to remember, doctors are scared to take a patient off the drug. Okay, because if they take a patient off the drug and the patient has a bad outcome, they're going to say, you screwed up. You took that patient off the drug. You should have left them on the drug and they would have done better. Okay, my personal way of thinking is I say to myself, I don't want to take a statin, you know, lowering my effect of my coenzyme Q and my mitochondria. Why would I want to do that? I can easily control my lipids. Now, it'll be harder if a person has, as you said, familial hyperlipidemia. So maybe it'd be harder for them. Uh, but usually, you know, you look at these populations, there'll be populations where there's nobody with hypertension, there's nobody with diabetes, okay, there's nobody with coronary disease. So what I'm trying to say is, those populations probably have people with these variations like familial hyperlipidemia, high lipoprotein A and whatnot. And it seems that usually the diet overpowers that effect. And I've heard, you know, doctors Ornish and Esselstyn say to that effect, if the person's really following these diets, well, they tend to do well, even if they've got some of these you know, variants on their, their lipid metabolism. Some people have a hard time really getting their cholesterol down below 150, their total cholesterol, for example. So I can't say for sure, but again, what, the way I look at things is always, I will do everything I can to optimize things and I'll hope for the best. And you get peace of mind when you do that. I'm not thinking or worrying about anything. I know I'm doing everything I can. And if I learn something new, great, I'll do that too. Um, it's sort of my philosophy. You can't know exactly. You have to function with a component of the unknown. And you simply extrapolate towards what is the best thing to do. I will do that. And, I, and then I leave it at that. And I got peace of mind. I don't worry about it. But you can't precisely know. Am I doing enough or not? And because you don't know for sure what's enough, do a little extra to be sure as best you can. And just do the best you can and leave it at that. Well, maybe the best thing to do is for you to go take that job at True North. I would love it, but I would love to do it. You know what I would love? Like a perfect life for me would be, I would do, you know, research and study like in the morning. And then I would talk to patients in the afternoon. I like the morning time for doing complex studying. Um, 
man, you know, I, I like seeing my family, you know, so that's why I don't want to move out there. But I would love if they had an afternoon job, you know, I'd be grad happy to take a pay cut from my conventional medicine salary. But 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 if I had a job that I really wanted, because I, I can tell you, all these PhDs do all this research. There's tons of useful information in the medical literature. And I'm jealous of McDougal right now because he's retired. He can sit around and read all day. That's what I would like to do, but I have to work. You know, I got a kid in college, kid in grad school, help pay their tuitions and stuff. Because I'm telling you, all this information, these PhDs do great research, but they can't put it all together. I can put it all together. And so, but it's, you need time. You need time to study. And they really ought to have a research institute, you know, like Watson and Crick. That's how I figured out DNA structure from studying all the information. And that really needs to be done more. There's tons of good information out there. I've got stacks and stacks of papers that I want to get to reading and it's hard to find the time. So anyways. Could you go part-time in your job and then work part-time like two weeks? My job, won't, my job won't let me go part-time. So Got it. Um, Barbara says, what is the best blood test for dementia or pre-dementia? Is there a blood test for it? I'm not aware of that. Well, the biggest risk factors were high blood pressure and you can get your blood pressure checked very easily. So a blood pressure check is very useful and a total cholesterol check, you know, the atherosclerosis risk factor. And if you're having a hard time with your total cholesterol, you can start looking at the related risk factors. For example, you try to get your serum ferritin you know, below 80, you know, maybe between 30 to 80 or something. Um, so you could do that sort of thing. Um, okay. Dr. Rogers, thank you. Any idea what you'd like to talk about in November? Uh, I haven't thought about it right now. I'm thinking a little bit about wound healing because that opens up a lot of stuff. And I know my talk was kind of technical, but what I feel about for that I'm sort of giving the people this information that they might be hard for them to find elsewhere. So I apologize if I go too technical, but it's also kind of interesting that way. Um, the other thing is, um, I'm also thinking about doing a little more study into this, the um, peroxynitrite pathways of oxidative stress, because I think that's an under-recognized mechanism of disease. Um, and there's a lot of cool stuff connecting it all. Like I, I personally thought that one slide where I have all roads lead to calcium was like an AO, an academic orgasm, because it showed you not only what's happening wrong, but how you could avoid it. And that's an under-recognized thing. That is not widely known, but it's a major cause of uh, loss of brain cells. Great. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Rogers. Maybe you'll do a What I Eat in a Day video sometime. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Okay. Well, take care. Thanks so much. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back at 10 a.m. tomorrow. My guest is Chef Ramses Bravo. I'm going to be talking about my first ever water fast that I just completed at the True North Health Center. And he's going to be making his top secret soup recipe that they give you after the fast. That's absolutely delicious. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.